Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. And we are broadcasting live, online and on the radio, from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today we speak to Dee Taylor, international president of Unite Here, about their Comeback Stronger report. We're breaking down ARPA fund disbursements with State Representative Neil Rafferty, and we also speak to Mr. Ahmed White, an academic from University of Colorado, about mass picketing as a tactic of labor and its defeat in the context of the proliferation of injunctions against striking workers in the last year. And we've got more coming up on today's Valley Labor Report. So y'all are going to want to stay tuned. Um, Big show today. Big show. Big, big show today. If you want to be a part of the program, we've got a phone number. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. And you can also leave a voicemail anytime you want throughout the week. If you want to call us at 2 or 3 in the morning, you're not going to wake us up. Because it doesn't ring on our phones. You're just going to be able to leave us a voicemail and we can check it and we can respond to it at the next show if we want. If it's really good or if it's really bad or if it's just if it's just fine, we'll respond to it. Um, if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap on the radio, then uh, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, you can find us anywhere online. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. We're on uh, wherever you get your podcasts, all at The Valley Labor Report. Um, and I just want to remind y'all that your support does help us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. And uh, February, the month of February, we finally we, we it took took a little bit after we, you know we went on break last year because I was deployed to support. Um, uh, Hurricane Ida recovery in New Orleans. And so we were off the radio for a bit and it took us a while to get our, all of our sponsors back up and everything, all the money coming in. But for February, we've got a bit more money coming in than going out, which is always nice. So if you want to help us stay out of the red, stay on the radio and expand our reach, then uh, you can support us on unionly.io slash O slash TVLR. That is unionly.io slash O slash TVLR or patreon.com slash the valley labor report but i will say unionly it's a it's a union company they only work with unions and labor organizations you know uh, organizations like us labor adjacent and um their fees their processing fees are lower than patreon so 
you more of the money that you send to us goes to us and you're using a union service instead of Patreon. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So support us on Unionly. You can also find our stickers on our Unionly store. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, and I do also want to send a special um, um, special uh, thank you and shout out to one of our longtime listeners, Joe Marshall. Um, he has been a supporter of the program basically since we started almost two years ago now. That's crazy. Almost two years ago, we started the program, and Joe Marshall has been listening to us most of that time, and we really appreciate his support of the program. Um, he is just a fantastic, fantastic union member. Uh, the ideal of kind of what you want uh, from somebody who is, you know, who, who's been in the movement, who's now retired, and he's still doing everything that he can to support working folks. I was talking to him the other day and like, uh, you know, he's, um, he's, you know, he's, he's older, he's retired. He can't get around it as good as, as good as he used to, but he was talking to me about how he was giving his congressman hell about, uh, not supporting the miners. And, you know, you love to, you love to hear that from folks who, who they've, they put in their time and by all rights, you know, they've done enough and they're still doing it. It's, I, Joe Marshall is a great brother, uh, and we appreciate his support of the show. Those retirees who are still mm -hmm. feisty and and uh, willing to, you know, show up are are worth their weight in gold. And and you know, yeah, those of us who are younger have a responsibility to try to to learn from these folks. Uh, they've been there. They've literally paid the Absolutely. dues. Absolutely, uh, they've seen the fights. Uh, so. Yeah, thanks, Joe, and, and to all of you who uh, are retired, who are still active in the movement, doing what you can to make the world a better place. Yep. And if you're a member of a union, uh, you should get your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. Um, and by the way, have y'all noticed the new music? Like, how cool is that? Jules Taylor has put together some clips of, like, you know, Southern Alabama labor, some newsreels, some stuff like that um, with his own original music in the background with Florence uh, uh, Reed or Reese. I think it's Reed. She was the person who wrote, which side are you on? And that's a recording of her singing it at like a UMWA convention, I think. So that's really cool. A lot of, a lot of neat stuff going on there. Jules Taylor is the producer of the working people podcast, and we could not thank him more for doing this music for us um we are really happy with it we think it's really cool um and and it's pretty neat having our own uh having our own music instead of or, or you know i mean the, the the music that we had was our own but it was just something that it was just something that like david and i put together uh you know we're not like we're not professionals we're not like fancy people like uh, uh like jules is so you know uh <laughs> so we appreciate that um so our first guest today is d taylor um he's the international president of unite here unite here is a union representing 300,000 folks across the united states and canada mostly in the hotel gaming food service manufacturing textile distribution laundry transportation and airport industries <laughs> uh the name comes from a 2004 merger of the union of needle trades industrial and textile employees unite and the hotel employees and restaurant employees union here so Unite Here. 
Dee Taylor is the union's international president, having been a member of the union since the 70s. He's been president since 2012, and he set up an organizing goal for the next five years at the union's convention in 2014, and he surpassed it with the union organizing 62,000 members from 2014 to 2019, 12,000 of which are workers in the U.S. South, and we love to see that. That's We, we are uh, uh, Southern partisans here on the Valley Labor Report. So as you can imagine, a union representing the sorts of folks that Unite Here does, uh, they were heavily, heavily, heavily hit by the pandemic. And at its height, 98% of their members were laid off since the union has, uh, since then, the union has continued to support its members and even organize new ones. During the pandemic, they organized Circo Resort and Casino and uh, the city's new, that's Las, uh, Las Vegas, the city's new Allegiant Stadium, adding 3,500 new members. They recently released a report on their response to the pandemic titled Come Back Stronger uh, that is linked in the show notes if you would like to take a look at it yourself. And that's why I wanted to talk to Dee today. So, brother, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I really, really appreciate it. Well, great. Thanks. I love talking to people in the South who are doing union work. I mean, um, I think um, if you change the South, you change America and if you don't change the South, the South comes to you, the worst parts of it, like right to work, et cetera. So exactly. we have invested a lot in the South. Exactly. And and we appreciate that. 12,000 new members across the South from 2014 to 2019, you know, that was not like a particularly high watermark for the labor movement. So that is a, uh, I mean, that is in, very, very impressive to be able to to do that as a union representing you know, some uh, like like workers that are are sort of on the brink. You know, these are these aren't uh, 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 well. The, the um, you know, these workers are more tedious. Uh, they're seen as low wage, quote unquote, low skilled workers, and and you know, we know that that's that's basically nonsense. Um, so to be able to organize twelve thousand of these workers in those years, that's it. Uh, that's very impressive. How did you? How did your union do that? Well, to begin with, uh, we're not stopping with that. We, I just came to a leadership meeting, and we're very focused on the South. I, when I took over, I said, uh, you know, I'm from the South originally, and I'm like, I don't know why we're not in the South. Uh, workers there are getting screwed. Uh, mm-hmm. They have the same aspirations as everybody else for the American dream. We should be in the South. Um, well, we did it because we concentrated on it, and we didn't give up on it, and we focused in on it, and you know, I sort of modeled what we did on the civil rights movement. In the civil rights movement, these chains like Woolworths and others uh, operating in New York or LA or Chicago, you know, doing all this great stuff. And then if you went to Atlanta or Birmingham or Mobile or New Orleans, they acted completely different. And so with some of these chains, we said, you can't act like you're our friend in New York and then put people in poverty in the South. And so we focused in on that and we focused in on um, both in food service and in gaming and also in hotels. I mean, for example, uh, Caesars uh, operates in Atlantic City and Las Vegas and other places. They have a big place in New Orleans. We said, hold on a second. 
those workers live in poverty there and you're making tons of money. That's not going to be acceptable. And, you know, we organize that place, but our workers in Las Vegas and Atlantic City said, no, 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 we're not going to have things just go everything normal while our brothers and sisters in New Orleans are getting uh, under the thumb of the boss. And same thing with hotels and same thing with food service. Right, right. Uh, and I worked in... I worked in a restaurant for about three years uh, before I got my job with the uh, with the federal government um, once I graduated college. And I have such um, such a great amount of respect for folks that do that work. Um, And uh, and I feel so much solidarity with them because of, um, you know, the, the way that, that people look at them and the way that they're treated by society and by the boss and the way that they're looked down on. And it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, I worked a lot harder <laughs> when I was in a restaurant than I do now at my desk job. And it's not because, you know, it's not because I don't do a good job. It's just like, that's hard work. It's hard work being on your feet, you know, uh, 12, 14 hours a day, um, you know, making I was making two dollars an hour from the restaurant. Uh, you know, I made tips and, and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, folks have to make rent on that kind of on that kind of money. And and uh, it's it's insane that, you know, that, that we as a society have <laughs> have allowed that to be the case. And and that's why I I respect so much unions that like yours that specifically go after the that that, that go after these types of workers um, to support them in their organizing efforts uh, in, in one of wh- what I believe is, is one of the most exploited industries in the country right now. Um, so the what I wanted to talk to you today about, though, was the response that your union had to the pandemic. And um, like I said, when I was introducing you, I'm sure folks can imagine that 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 a, a union that primarily represents like food service and entertainment workers, um, this the pandemic hit you really, really hard. Can you talk to us about what it was like in the early days of the pandemic when you had 98 percent of your members laid off? What what was that like going going through those meetings and, and uh, working with the members? It's pretty scary. Uh, I mean, you think about it. Uh, nobody was traveling. There, there were no concerts. There were no sports events. Nobody was going to a hotel or a casino. Things were just shut down. So we had 98 percent of our workers out. Um, but we're very resilient. Um, we're very focused. Uh, we have been good guardians. And so uh, we really made an effort to do several things. One, uh, I'm sure in Alabama, like every other state, the unemployment system was completely inadequate to take into mm-hmm. effect all the folks. So we felt very much we had to shepherd people through that. We wanted to make sure food banks were up. We also started negotiating with companies about extended health care benefits, because in the middle of the pandemic, the last thing you wanted to do was to lose your health care. We also right. pushed these companies to pay people for a while um, because we're like, these are the same people who brought you prosperity right when times get tough. You really want to abandon them. That's, that's your idea of loyalty. I think one of the effects of the great resignation in this country, particularly in our industry is uh, our industry showed that essentially they view workers 
in the hospitality industry as expendable. And so people are like, okay, I'm going to have to put up with a lot of gruff from customers. I'm not making enough money to really uh, obtain the American dream. And I know my owner doesn't care about me. So I think that's why people Mm -hmm. have booked out. At the same time, we spent an enormous amount of time on a few things. One, the kind of relief on nuts and bolts. Also, we wanted to make sure on rent assistance. You know, those COVID bills were very helpful to prevent evictions. Two, to make sure people got through unemployment because that was a, a nightmare in every state. Number three, food. So we felt with shelter, some money and food to try to get people through. But then we wanted to make sure they had the right to return back to their old jobs. Because what a lot of companies want to do is, oh, we have the excuse of the pandemic. Boom, we'll wipe our hands of these workers and bring in a whole new crop at at lower price. So we had to actually pass legislation called right to return. Uh, No fault of their own. They had the right to go back to their job. Uh, We also were very involved with the American Recovery Act to get six months of free COBRA for everybody in the United States, not just our members, everybody, Mm -hmm. because it's counterintuitive to say, oh, yeah, during the pandemic and healthcare crisis, people shouldn't have health care. Um, so we did a variety of things. And basically, we have started to come back. Um, but our industry probably has been the hardest hit um, mm-hmm. from the effects of COVID. Right. Yeah, well, I uh, so I read a piece by Hamilton Nolan in In These Times. Uh, It was published in December 2021. um, And the title is How the Mighty Culinary Union Survived the Apocalypse. And so this is about one of your locals in Las Vegas. And uh, this is just, I believe, just the culinary union, not the entire international. They launched a free food distribution that has given out more, nearly half a million baskets of food to members beans rice chicken fruit and uh at the program's peak 1800 people were coming to pick up food every day according to hamilton's uh reporting here and and it said it said that the union guaranteed its members health care coverage for 18 months that's That's amazing that i mean that's the 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 support that these people got as they were laid off of their jobs you know, from the union directly and from the union's lobbying efforts, like you were talking about getting the right to return, that uh, uh, that is huge because one can certainly see how it would be very tempting for a company to say, oh, I've got this, you know, 30 year employee who's now making, I don't know, you know, I don't know how much, 30, 40 dollars an hour. I can hire somebody who's, you know, a snot-nosed brat, 18 years old, right out of high school, pay him $15 an hour, and he'll be happy doing the same job. Why wouldn't I do that? And y'all were able to secure a right for these people to, whenever these jobs open up, they have to be hired first. I mean, that's like, it's just from the union directly, from the union's lobbying efforts in Nevada and in D.C., uh, most people didn't have that. Yeah, we also got that le- legislation on right to return for the state in California and Connecticut, too. We also got it in certain metropolitan areas. And it wasn't just applied to our workers. It was applied to everybody mm-hmm. in our industry because, you know, part of our job is to uplift people and give people rights. Uh, I mean, there and we felt very strongly about this, but uh, 
if there ever was a sign of the union difference, it was during the pandemic in our industry. Mm, yeah. um, companies left people, workers on the highway by themselves. And uh, I feel very good about the work that the union did. That food distribution mm-hmm. in Las Vegas, by the way, was not just for our members. We decided to extend that out to the community because, you know, our uh, our members have neighbors in and friends and family who work in the same industry. And we wanted to make sure they had food on the table and uh, that distribution went to anybody. And uh, it was all COVID safe. In fact, what you did is that you drove up in your car, popped your trunk, the food was put back there. We had to do deliveries too, because as you know, some people relied on public transportation you can't get public transportation and have 40 pounds of food to get back on the bus. So we did that too. But it was not just unique to Las Vegas. The efforts we did like in Orlando were tremendous. Orlando, Florida, the work Mm. we did in Boston was tremendous. Um, And the work we did in places like Toronto, um, which still has uh, some real uh, challenges. So we felt good about our work. Uh, at the same time, uh, we now have said, OK, COVID's going to be here in some variant. We've got to move. And so we're very aggressive in organizing. Last year, we organized 10,000 new members. Uh, and wow. our goal this year is to be at 15,000. So we want to. There's never been a moment in time better to organize right now because the discontent of workers, they know corporate America is not going to take care of them. Number two, never in my lifetime has there been these kind of labor shortages. So uh, that's helpful. And then number three, there's never been a more pro-union administration uh, in my lifetime either. I mean, when have you heard the president, any president in recent history, talk openly about how unions are good and help build the middle class? And Mm. Joe Biden has said that. And so we got to take advantage of all that. And frankly, the public knows companies aren't going to take care of them. And they know the government really is not going to take care of them. We got to take care of ourselves, and that's through the union. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That is, you know, that that's something that that uh, I think that people, you know, who do more uh, conservative political type talk, like I'm happy if the government helps workers. That's fine. Like yeah. that's, but but I'm not counting on the government necessarily to. Uh, uh, to to do the things that it needs to do, frankly, you know, because because well, even I, in, in I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the government should has an obligation to have a safety net, mm-hmm. but that's a safety net. In order, right? I think if conservatives were really conservative, they would say the labor movement is the best way to raise people up into the middle class, right? And frankly, have a part of the American dream not relying on the government. But that's not really their goal. Their goal is to have all the power to corporate America. Right. It, it, right. That, that, that's, that's exactly right. I, uh, you know, it, it does not make sense to me the antipathy that people on the right have for, uh, you know, independent organizations of working people, uh, fighting to make their lives better. I, you know, I mean, this is, it, it, it's exactly like you said. If they genuinely wanted workers to have better lives without government intervention, then they should be uh, the, the top people advocating for unionization. But like you said, the, the priorities aren't, aren't quite like that. 
So you mentioned that, um, and and we can uh, uh, we can wrap with looking to the future. You said that you organized ten thousand people last year, and you're looking to organize fifteen thousand people this year. What does that look like? What is the plan to actually make that happen? And um, you know, uh, uh, wh- what are those campaigns going to look like? How are you going to start them? Well, we've already started some of them. I think uh, we're, we're going to focus a lot on these big food factories that have sprung up. You know, people call them ghost kitchens, industrial kitchens. Those kitchens are usually employ hundreds of people. They tend to be women and people of color. Uh, they are horrible working conditions. And we're going to jump right into it. And we have started to jump into that because there's been a proliferation of those throughout uh, the United States. Uh, we're looking at organizing all these uh, universities with their big food service operations. You know, a lot of these universities proclaim to be, oh, they care about workers, they care about this or that. Once their workers get organized, we'll see about Mm -hmm. that. Obviously, we're going to be organizing in hotels and casinos. Um, And so I think there'll be a lot into tech cafeterias, like the Googles, the Facebooks, Mm -hmm. Dells, who have huge campuses. Um, So, we're looking at a variety of those. Um, we just organized, in fact, literally this week, we're going to get recognition uh, for two new places in New Orleans, um, which we're excited about. Wow. Um, we're very interested in Georgia, too. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that overlays with the 2022 election. Uh, you know, it's funny, Our one of our key directors is, uh, from New Orleans, and he's been talking about Alabama a lot. I said, well, listen, I, I, my mother grew up part of her life in Birmingham, so mm-hmm. th- there's a union history there. And Absolutely. Um, as you know, we've been uh, big supporters of the Warrior Met strike. Um, mm-hmm. And also, we got a lot of organizers down in Bessemer right now uh, to help. Uh, so right. I, I, I am very – I have committed our union to the South, and uh, I think that uh that is what is key to change our country actually i actually believe mm-hmm. organizing the south is key to changing our country amen yes i definitely agree um and certainly no bias from us uh, <laughs> southerners but i uh if there's ever anything that uh y'all um, that, that we could do on the program or as union members to support your organizing efforts in the South uh, and specifically in Alabama. Uh, I'm a member of the North Alabama Labor Council and, um, and, and we have, uh, we've been going down to once a month, we're going to be going down to uh, uh, support the RWDSU in, in Bessemer as well. Um, and so we are uh committed to helping folks organize down here. And I appreciate your work. Um, appreciate the work that you've done for your members and for other members. And uh, thank you for your time today. And uh, thank you. like I said, let us know if we can ever do anything to help. Thank you. Take care. Good luck. All right. All right, folks, uh, you've been listening to D. Taylor. He is the international president of Unite Here, a food service casino hotel uh, type union. Organized 10,000 workers last year, 10,000 workers in 2021, and their goal is to organize 15,000 workers uh, in 2022. That is incredibly impressive, and we look forward to seeing that uh, seeing that actually come to fruition. We're going to take a break really quick, and we will be right back to talk about 
the Amazon Union election in Bessemer. So stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, Or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know how viable clean and renewable energy is, and to that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state, and they are working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about their work and how you can join at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855-617-9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. 
Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. You are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. Uh, We appreciate your time this morning and appreciate everybody tuning in online. We're going to be going extra, going into overtime. After we get off the radio today at 11, we're going to be continuing our interview with Ahmed White. He'll be coming on later in the show, and um, we just don't have enough time on the radio. So we're going to go a little bit longer online. So we appreciate y'all listening to us on Facebook and on YouTube. You're going to get a little extra of us uh, today. Um, in the chat, we've got uh, uh, Jeb. Said he picketed, I picketed Trump Casino with Unite Here in 2016 when he wouldn't honor a contract that had been legally bargained. Very humbling experience being with those workers and sisters, brothers and sisters, solidarity. That's awesome. And uh, uh, D.L. Sendero, he said, I picketed with the West Virginia teachers during their strike back in 2018. This is just before they were going to go wildcat. It is the greatest labor experience of my life. that is awesome. Very cool. I have loved being able to be on picket lines with folks. Um, especially, there's really nothing like being on a picket line when the when a strike starts. There's such a like just a a a, a raw kind of like screw you energy. Um, you know. It's almost like a party, and I, it's it's awesome. It's so much fun. I've been able to be with uh, CWA workers that were striking against AT and T, and auto workers and coal miners. I think that's all. That's the only people that I've been on the picket line with. Um, but it's it's it. I second that. Uh, D. El Sendero. Uh, Before we move on, I just wanted to give another plug for that report from D. Taylor and Unite Here, the Comeback Stronger report. If if y'all haven't checked this out, take Mm -hmm. just a second to do it. It should be in the notes for the show, but you can also just go to unitehere.org, Comeback Stronger, just a little, you know, you can see it online. They also put it in a PDF form. Right. And if... You're not sure, you know, what unions could have done or what good things they did do, especially in the early days of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Man, this mm-hmm. is a great example. And if it's you're so looking, good. if you look at this and you're like, hmm, my union didn't do this or didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Now you have some some solid ideas of, of what can work and right. what can be done and, and, you know, things to push inside your own union. Uh, yep. Because I think it's really great that they were able to find ways to serve their members, even though their members were laid off. Yeah, that's that's, that's that tough. really is. Um, I mean, that's like crazy. Ninety eight percent of your members and you're handing out eighteen hundred uh, meals a day. That's right. And, and helping to 
giving helping people those members, for you know, months. helping them navigate mm-hmm. the bureaucracy yeah. and the unemployment systems. That's so, um, so cool. Yeah, great stuff. And, and uh, something that resonated with uh, President Taylor's interview is that they were doing things to help workers, not yeah. just their own members. And, and many of us benefited from the lobby efforts and advocacy of Unite Here, regardless mm-hmm. of, you know, where we work. So that's that's great stuff. Uh, yeah, and while we're reading from the YouTube chat, Jeb also said that Biden was at Ironworkers Local 5 in D.C. yesterday signing an executive order for, for project labor agreements on federal projects over $35 million. And that's huge. That is huge for the building trades unions. And, like, for an administration that has so few, that is having so few wins, I don't know why, like, 67,000 federal employees got a raise to a minimum of $15 an hour like a couple weeks ago. Why is that? Why is the administration not going all over the place with that? And like the project labor agreements, uh, Jeb said, especially in North Alabama with all those low road contractors working on federal projects. All these people, we talked the other day about these non-union contractors. Uh, 30%, 30% of construction workers are on some sort of government assistance program like food stamps or uh, Medicaid or something like this. And uh, those aren't union workers, okay? Those are non-union construction workers, and uh, they're, but their bosses are are making more, and it's it's just in insane. So these, you know, that reminds me of a conversation we had a while back with Patricia Todd uh, with Jobs mm-hmm, to Move America, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they did the study on state subsidies here in Alabama and the ways in yep. which the state government, local governments. You know, just bend over backwards to give money, resources, tax breaks, tax incentives, you name it. They're all there to try to more or less, you know, maybe bribe is a strong word, but it's a form of, you know, legal uh, bribery in a way to get companies to locate here or to expand here. Right. And, you know, that just seems like a common Mm -hmm. sense sort of metric when you're looking, if you uh, are doing economic development Maybe you should ask, are you going to pay your workers enough to where we don't have to turn around and subsidize them in other ways right. through the social safety net? Uh, are you going to provide benefits that are sufficient for your workers so that you know they don't qualify for Medicaid? Mm-hmm. Uh, seem yeah. like very common, like that's just like low-hanging fruit. Uh, that you should look at when you're doing yeah, economic no, Adam, development. Adam, you're crazy for thinking that when your tax dollars go to private hands, that they should support their workers. Obviously, yeah. your tax dollars should be primarily given to the pockets of the Raytheon CEO. Like that's right. that's where it's important that your tax when you when we allocate your tax dollars. Um, we need to be primarily focused with making sure that CEOs get as much money as possible with as few restrictions on how they treat their employees. Well, you know, po- it's I mean. funny you bring that up because uh, <laughs> we have a, a gentleman called Del Marsh, state senator here in Alabama, former state Senate pro Tim. He's now uh, taken a step back from that so he can mm-hmm. focus all of his all of his time and energy on privatizing the public school system. And uh, we'll talk about this more in in depth next week. But, you know, the idea being that you as a resident, you pay taxes that go to schools. And so you should get that money back to send to a private school or a homeschool or a church school. 
So I'm just wondering, when do my uh, tax dollars that I pay towards the war machine and uh, mass incarceration, when do mm-hmm. I get that back? Because mm-hmm. uh, maybe I could use that to build a security system. Yeah. You know, I could uh, yeah. buy more ammunition as I exercise my right. Second Amendment rights. Yeah. So, you know, just if we're going to do a la carte uh, government <laughs> services and taxes here and just pick and choose, um, yeah. just something to think about. Speaking of school privatization, though, while we're while we're kind of reading topics and just going off the hip, uh, Terry Michael uh, commented in our Facebook chat, which we we read during the show. We're on, we're live on Facebook and on YouTube. And if you want to, if you want to contribute to the show or you want to say something, but you don't want to call in to our phone number eight four four eight nine nine TVLR. The phone number is eight four four eight nine nine eight eight five seven. If you don't want to do that, you can just write a comment in the chat on YouTube. Or on Facebook. Terry Michael is a field rep for AFT um, in Birmingham, and she said that they're sick out to improve working conditions during the pandemic at the Birmingham City Schools. They won all nine items that they asked for. There were nine. I- she's, she's saying that there were nine items that Birmingham City teachers were asking for, um, and that's why that's why they uh, conducted their sick out, and they won all of them. I'm not uh, Adam. Do you know what the nine things that they were asking for were no i think uh you know but if we do a deep dive next week on yeah, school we'll definitely be talking about school choice sure. act school privatization that i would love to see you know what all they yep. were able to accomplish there so mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. thank you for that and shout out to birmingham for yeah. leading the way solidarity with them i appreciate it terry and terry if you've got any um if you've got any guest suggestions for this topic feel free to send them our way uh, any any teachers that would uh, down in Birmingham, that would be particularly good to talk through. Uh, that would be w- we would welcome that uh, suggestion as well. So, um, uh, um, so the next topic that we wanted to talk about is um, the Amazon Union election. The second election, the rerun is here. Ballots went out yesterday. Ballots went out yesterday. They were mailed at 1 p.m. from the NLRB regional office down south for the rerun of the Bessemer, Alabama Union election. The results of the election last year were set aside by the NLRB, mainly because there was a mail receptacle placed on company property in full view of security cameras, decked out with company propaganda, in violation of orders from the NLRB not to do that, In issuing their ruling, the NLRB said that uh, doing this in violation of the prohibition from the NLRB with all this company property in full view of the security cameras, doing all this gave the impression that the company controlled the election, not the NLRB. Now, that that makes sense to me. After all, uh, I would not want to cast a ballot at the Democratic Party headquarters, for example. I think that makes sense. Um, well, they've got another one out there. <laughs> Amazon has another mailbox out there, which the NLRB this time is saying is fine because it's like not it, it's it's a little bit further away, and it doesn't have company propaganda on it. But um, but it's still in view of the security cameras, according to the union. And and I'm not like I don't understand the. I don't understand the NLRB's reasoning on this. If it was enough to totally like set aside an election, why would you even allow it there? Because there's no reason other than the election that Amazon is putting forward to have this mail receptacle there. It's not necessary. Not necessary for the running of the business. It's only for the election. 
There's no reason. Just don't have it there. Just don't have it on company property. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. And in, in the latest updates that came out yesterday, I got the impression that the labor board is going to just kind of take the approach of, hey, we're at the election point. The ballots are going out. We'll deal with any fallout or complaints afterwards. Uh, maybe, you know, that's my interpretation. Maybe I'm wrong there, but that's the vibe I got that they're sort of just uh, at the point of no return now and they're going to deal with any sort of complaints after the fact. Because yeah. I saw that too. It, it was a little confusing, uh, especially when the union said, hey, it's still still in view of a security camera and that still, you know, mm-hmm. provides some chilling effect, I think. Uh, you know, rationally or irrationally, um, you should not have a chilling effect uh, conducted in a what is supposed to be a neutral, fair, free right. election. Yeah, yeah. I don't. It doesn't doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand it. But beyond that, the company has been engaging in other illegal union busting activity. Isaiah Thomas, a ship dot wor- a ship dock worker at the Bessemer facility, said at a press conference that he has been surveilled and disciplined. For discussing the union during break time, uh, which is your legal and federally protected right as a worker in America, you can discuss uh, you can discuss union activity on uh, in neutral settings, like in a break room, and when you're not on the clock, when you're not supposed to be working. Um, which, just as an aside, this is uh, this is the real free speech fight in the country that's going on. Absolutely. Uh, and until the millionaires that are crying about being censored from the tops of some of the most illustrious media institutions in the world, until these millionaires start caring about working people who are daily censored by their boss, uh, who are or, or are sisters and brothers in Brookwood, who are being repressed by the state, who are being told by the government, you can only have so many people on the picket line. Until they start caring about that, I could not, could not care less about whether you are on this or that platform or whether these people want to be associated with you or want to speak to you. Like, I could not, could not care less about that until you start caring about working people who are actually being uh, censored. Right. Yeah. And I think that's important. That's where the First Amendment battles are really happening. That's where, you know, the majority of people in this country feel First Amendment suppression. Mm -hmm. It's in the workplace or, um, you know, on social media or in the community about their workplace. Yeah. How many people feel safe and comfortable actually having open organizing conversations with their coworkers, especially here in the South? Yeah. Uh, you know, you and I hear it from people all the time who are interested in unions and interested in organizing, but fear is mm-hmm. a major, major factor right, there. Right, right. So, yeah, I don't want to hear about First Amendment, uh, yeah. you know, conflicts unless we bring that into the conversation. Oh, no. Instagram's putting a warning in front of my misinformation. I'm being censored. Oh, no. Um, so, of course, beyond the illegal stuff, though. We've got the mandatory captive audience meetings that is totally legal uh, (laughs) that the company is holding eight hours a day, seven days a week, at penalty of job loss for workers at Amazon. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you know, talk about 
censorship and controlling your actions. Uh, I mean, that's crazy. And so all of this is evidence that labor law is broken. And um, what is the remedy under federal law for violating a worker's right to vote in a free and fair election? It's basically nothing. It's having another election. There's no fines. There are no harsher enforcement mechanisms. Uh, none of that. It's just a redo of the election. And of course, that benefits the employer because Amazon dropped a stunning, a stunning $30 million on the last campaign, on the last anti-union campaign, $30 million, okay? And now they're more profitable. They, they just released a financial report showing that they, they had like their most profitable quarter or year or whatever in the company's history. And now they're raising their prime prices. And so people are going to, if the union goes through, if and when these workers win their union election, there are going to be people on the radio that say, oh, uh, the Amazon's raising their uh, prices because people in Bessemer are now making $20 an hour instead of $15 an hour. And that's why. And it's like, uh, no. It's because of all it's because they're wanting to put money in these people's pockets. They're paying 30 million dollars for anti-union uh, bu- uh, for, for union busters. They're putting billions of dollars in the pocket of one person, one person. Same thing with Starbucks. I mean, you've yeah, already exactly. seen Starbucks say that they're going to be rising mm-hmm. uh, raising prices and there's already, you know, right, some right. conversations uh, pinpointing that back at the workers and the unions. Right. There's not even, you know, the first uh, collective bargaining agreement mm. signed at a Starbucks store. Right. It it's not you know you can't pin that on the union. You can't pin that on the workers for organizing. That's right. their right. It's a you know that's what they should be doing, and we're proud of them for doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many ways that corporations can take you know many actions they can take before they decide to ri- uh, raise prices on a consumer. Uh, yeah. Starting with all the money they sent to their union busting law firm friends. For comparison, RWDSU spent like seven hundred to eight hundred thousand. Uh, but it's more difficult for RWDSU to do another campaign than Amazon because RWDSU is funded by workers. Workers contribute ten dollars a week in their dues. Members of RWDSU pay ten dollars a week for their dues, and that's how they have you know hundreds of thousands of members across this country and Canada that do that. So seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars is a lot more difficult for them to come up with than thirty million dollars is for Amazon. Um, but despite the deck being stacked against them, and it would, and and just to be clear, it'd be stacked against them by the nature of the fight that they're picking, that they're picking, even if labor law actually protected workers and their rights in this country. But despite the deck being stacked against them, some of these workers are hopeful. I mentioned last week that several unions have been supporting the campaign, including my own. AFGE has six organizers down there, and you just heard D. Taylor from uh, the international president of Unite Here mention that they have several organizers. Uh, that I mean, several unions, Teamsters, SEIU, Unite Here, AFGE, and others are basically just giving RWDSU organizers for months at a time uh, to support this campaign, and that's awesome. Uh, the North Alabama Labor Council resolved in December to spend at least one day down there per month making house calls with RWDSU, and last week was the first time that we did that. Um, the company has been trying to make this sound terrible <laughs> in the messages that they bombard their workers with, saying, quote, many have expressed concerns with inconvenient home visits and phone calls by union organizers. Uh, like, I want to know how many many is, 
okay, uh, <laughs> what these concerns look like. Because it's much less inconvenient and concerning than a captive audience meeting that the bosses force you to sit through, I would say. If you don't want to talk to me, you don't have to. You can just say, I'm not interested, and I will walk away. <laughs> right. Uh, there's not the implicit you know, power dynamics right. there because you don't employ them. You have no exactly. power over them. But people talk about, oh, the union is going to coerce people if we have card checks. Yeah, the union is is the union. Workers are the ones who have coercive power in employment situations. I yeah, mean, are okay. You, are like, they talking about peer pressure? Yeah, because uh, I, mean, I mean, yeah, that's a thing. Uh, we we all experience that as children uh, <laughs> and adults. <laughs> peer pressure is a real thing, but uh, that is not at all comparable. Yeah. To like, having the power of, of yeah. hiring and firing, the power to take away someone's health care, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, their ability to put food on the table. Right. Um, and I was going to ask, since you're more up to date on it than I am, is Amazon still uh, sending out these text messages through like their... Um, they are. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. Amazon is still bombarding their workers. Yeah, that's with that's the where text that message. Messages. That's where that message came from. Is is a, a Amazon worker <laughs> tweeted that tweeted out a right. screen cap of it. Um, and so you can tell us you're not interested in talking, and we'll just like walk away because we don't. I mean, that's all. That's all we can do. We just walk away. And say okay, okay. Well, I'm not going to talk to you. If you tell your boss, I'm not interested in hearing your anti-union crap. Uh, I'm going to continue doing my job, or I'm just going to go home. Um, you can be fired. <laughs> so, uh, but the conversations that I had on Saturday were great. Basically, everybody that I spoke to invited me into their home. Um, everyone was incredibly friendly and receptive. And a common theme that I heard from workers uh, was that there were folks that voted no last time that are going to be voting yes this time. Because immediately, they told me, immediately after the campaign was over last year, the changes and the nice facade that Amazon had put on for the campaign saying, oh no, you don't need to unionize, you don't need to unionize, we're we're gonna, we understand there's some change you know, you want some changes, we'll just do that you don't need any of this pesky power in the workplace you don't need that, we'll do it we'll take care of it, Uh, that all left after the campaign and uh, workers got upset about that because they felt like they had been lied to, um One woman that I spoke to said that she didn't know a single person in her department that would be voting no. That is really amazing to hear. And more perfect union interviewed some workers expressing these thoughts that are more hopeful from workers on the ground. So let's listen to uh, those two clips that I've got from more perfect union. Well, it's a lot of them didn't vote. A lot of them were young people. A lot of young people didn't understand the importance of the union. But after we lost that vote, you know, you know how many people said I should have voted, that I should have. So it's a lot of mind changing. They went home and talked to their parents, their grandparents. Now let's play uh, the second one. In the uh, captive audience meetings, the union busters have been running. Um, pro-union workers have been you know, speaking up, and uh, that has done wonders. That has really helped to um, shift the uh, attitude towards the uh, union within the facility. A way how we're able to reach as many people as we can is by taking up space within inside the facility, by taking action. You know, in my department, we delivered a petition 
we got a little over half the entire doc to come together. One of the things that we had in our petition was the microwaves. There were not enough microwaves in the break rooms or they were broken. But the moment that we delivered our petition and showed that we meant business, next thing you know, they got microwaves in the break room. They had them stacked up, piled up, and they're like, okay. And with that action, it proves to our coworkers that real change can happen. But the only way that we can do that is by coming together and acting as a union. And that is important. Seeing people active, unafraid, and winning, that's going to be really helpful in making workers in the facility realize that, oh, like we can do this. This is real. This is happening, and we can win. Um, and the last story I want to tell you from last Saturday is uh, one that- Real quick, before oh, yeah. you get into that, uh, we had a couple commenters say that the uh, audio was not working for that second clip. So we'll see if we can get that uh, queued up later in the show for those of you who missed it. Uh, okay. But definitely check out More Perfect Union. Um, and the thing I loved about that second clip there, for those of you who didn't hear it, uh, was a worker, Isaiah, talking about an action they took already. I mean, again, you don't have to wait on a, a union election to take action in your workplace. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a great demonstration because... Uh, Isaiah and I think he said over half the folks on his dock signed a petition. And the petition was about a lack of microwaves for the break room. You know, that seems like a very simple kind of thing, but how many of you have experienced that? I know, I know I've certainly been there where the break room doesn't have enough microwaves for everybody mm-hmm. for the lunch rush. You're all trying to have something to eat. Just, you know, put some calories in your body to make it through the rest of the shift. Um, they had broken microwaves, not enough microwaves. Yeah. So Isaiah and his coworkers got this petition. They marched to the boss. They turned in this petition. And wouldn't you know it, a day later, they have plenty of microwaves. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, and I think that's uh, pretty telling on, on how direct action can not only get the goods and what you're asking for, but inspire others and, and show a path forward for why organizing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. can be good yeah. uh, and why that's a pathway uh, moving forward to improve not just break room conditions, but their life as a worker. The last story that I wanted to mention from last Saturday really frustrates me um, because I, I was speaking to this very sweet but skeptical woman in her home. Um, and you could tell that she had been through these captive audience meetings because one of the things that Amazon is saying is the union can't promise anything. And that's true, right? Because um, the union is just the workers. Workers are the union. And so, uh, you know, you're not going to be told what to bargain for, how to bargain for it, um, you, you know, or when to strike, how to strike. Like, these are all decisions that you will have to make yourself once you have a union. Once you decide to unionize, these are decisions that are going to be made democratically and by the workers. And so, but she asks, you know, what is the union going to do? Give me $40 an hour? And she said it with the subtext of like, that's crazy talk. $40 an hour? That's never going to happen. And how sad. How sad that Amazon has been able to beat this woman down to where she's got like kids in college. You know, she's a middle aged woman. And she believes that. $40 an hour is an outrageous amount for her time. You know how much $40 an hour is? That's $80,000 a year. Union auto workers make $80,000 a year. Dock workers, union dock workers sometimes make double that. 
electricians, some union warehouse workers even make $80,000 a year. That's not, that's not insane. That's not a crazy amount of money. That's chump change to what the union busters that Amazon is hiring. Uh, that's chump change to them. These people that Amazon is hiring, this third party that Amazon is bringing in to talk to these workers, that's chump change to them. They're making millions of dollars a year individually, thousands of dollars, literally thousands of dollars an hour. And she does, this woman does far more valuable and productive work for society than these union busters do. All they do is suck money off of the labor of other people. They don't create anything. They don't do anything of value. And they're making thousands of dollars an hour. And you think that what GM has more money than Amazon? You know, give me a break. Maybe Amazon workers won't get $40 an hour on their first contract. Maybe not even on their second contract. But nobody else did. Nobody else did. GM workers, Ford workers, they didn't get $40 an hour on their first contract. But are they worth it? Hell yes. Hell yes. Amazon workers are worth $40 an hour. Hell yes. That's not crazy. That's not crazy talk. Why wouldn't they be worth $80,000 a year once they've been in the facility and have some experience? Hell yes. Power to the workers down there in solidarity with them as they fight the fight against the largest corporate enterprise in the world and as they face this propaganda that tells them that they're not worth anything. Um, so uh, Neil Rafferty wasn't able to join us today to talk about ARPA fund distribution. And we've got a couple other segments we still need to get to last week in Southern Labor. Um, uh, so we're going to do, uh, but we're going to have to do last week in Southern Labor only online after we finish our talk with um, Ahmed, uh, Ahmed White from Colorado. Um, but really quickly, we're going to go to break really quick. But before we do that, I did want to give everybody an update about the anti-riot legislation uh, really quick and, and some, some action items on that. Um, the legislators took no time getting to moving forward on this legislation uh, designed to keep workers from peacefully picketing their workplace and protesting the government as if the state and bosses need more to, <laughs> needed more tools to stamp down dissent. Um, and this is the one thing that no one will explain to you, right? That none of these people pushing this trash will explain what problems it solves that aren't already addressed. It's a crime to destroy property. It's a crime to hurt people. Dozens, maybe hundreds of people were arrested. And more than 90% of these people in Alabama had their charges dropped because they were bogus. If anything, we need to be having conversations about loosening laws, regulating speech and assembly in Alabama, not further restricting rights of working folks here. Uh, but like I said, they wasted no time after the special session was over and placed priority on this bill. There was a public hearing, super scare quotes on that, that only allowed comment from three people. Next week, the House Judiciary Committee will vote on whether or not to send this legislation to the full House for a vote. If you are a union member and if you value your right to picket, if you value your right to get a little rowdy on the picket line, and make them damn scabs feel a little bad when they cross our line? If you value that, you need to tell your legislator, especially if they're on this committee. If you're a community member, 
that values your right to assemble in accordance with our constitutional rights as Americans, you need to let your legislator know. So who's on the Judiciary Committee? The chair is Jim Hill. The vice chair is Tim Wadsworth. You've got Philip Pettis. Mike Ball is from Madison. Mike Holmes, Dickie Drake, David Faulkner, Marika Coleman, Prince Chestnut, Chris England, Wes Allen, and Matt Simpson. These are the people that are going to decide if this bill moves forward. And they need to know from union members, from community members, that we value our right to assemble, we value our right to speak, and we value even our right to make people a little uncomfortable, to hurt people's feelings. I think it's fine to hurt people's feelings. I think it's fine. I'm an American. I'll hurt people's feelings if I want to. I'll maybe even cuss them out because I'm, I'm real rebellious, okay? So luckily, Hometown Action has made it easy. They're a sponsor of the program. We appreciate their support. You can use their link to let, them, uh, to let your legislator know that you do not support this bill. The link is hmtn.link slash hb2. It's also in the show notes. Again, the link is hmtn.link slash hb2. Seriously, folks, you need to let your legislators know that you oppose this bill. And uh, finally, before we go to break, just a couple of plugs. If you want to leave us a voicemail throughout the week, the phone number is 844-899-TVLR. You can give us money on unionly.io slash o slash TVLR. And I'm speaking at a an event Tuesday night, December. Uh, uh, I don't know why I said December. Tuesday night, February the 8th at a DSA event. I'm going to be speaking on a panel with some other folks uh, for uh, Southern chapters of the DSA raising money for coal miners. Uh, they're raising money for the coal miners that are on strike down in Bessemer, Alabama. There, We are going to be talking to some of the coal miners that are on strike. We're going to be talking to Hayden Wright. We're going to be talking to Kim Kelly. Uh, it's going to be great. So you should, uh, you should definitely... Um, check that out for sure. Check that out. And let's see if I can get you a link for that really quick. Um, it, it's going to be good. The link is, uh, bit.ly slash DSA for UMWA bit.ly slash DSA for UMWA. I'm going to be there. Kim Kelly's going to be there. Hayden Wright and coal miners. So uh, very cool. I really appreciate. And that's something for union members to like keep in mind here. You know, I'm not a member of DSA, but I am very thankful for their work. And I appreciate what they're doing for working people. And I understand that there are union members that hear socialists and they think, oh, you know, scary, whatever. But look, who's been on the side of these coal miners this whole time? It's been DSA. DSA's already raised thousands of dollars, and they're going to be doing this event on Tuesday. Republicans haven't, not a single, not a single Republican or conservative voice or politician in Alabama has spoken out in support of these people. And very few Democrats have. So that's something to keep in mind. We're going to go to break, and we're going to come back with, uh, we're going to come back 
and talk to Ahmed White about the history of mass picketing in America in the context of the injunctions in 2021. Really excited for this conversation. So stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. They have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and they secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about their work advocating for customers and to join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. WBNN's not getting commercials. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855 617 9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855 617 9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or DSANorthAlabama at Gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a proud sponsor of the Valley Labor Report, and we're here to help keep you in the loop on the assault on your right to protest, picket, and peaceably assemble in Alabama. The anti-protest bill is back this year, and it's as bad as ever. There is huge interest in building worker power and increasing unionization in Alabama that has corporations scared. Don't let their influence on our state legislators become another tool to arrest striking workers and union supporters. This racist bill is especially problematic for black organizers and unnecessarily gives law enforcement broad discretion to define even small peaceful gatherings as a riot. Tell your Alabama legislators to say no to House Bill 2. We've set up an easy way for you to do that. You can go to hmtn.link slash hb2 where you'll find more information and an email template you can use right from your smartphone that link is hmtn.link slash hb2 you'll also find more info on social media at hometown action
We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans, and we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers, and we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. We are the only union talk radio show in the state of Alabama. My name is Jacob Morrison, and here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. Uh, Last year was a big year for unions and their coverage, particularly around the strike. Even though in historical context, if you look over the last hundred years or so, 2021 wasn't particularly noteworthy, uh, there was certainly a different feel and a different tone in the coverage as workers from coal miners to grad students and factory workers to cereal makers went on strike, a common theme that arose from these strikes was the widespread use of injunctions. If you listen to the show, you know intimately about the struggle that the coal miners in Brookwood have faced uh, with these particularly repressive orders from the state, restricting them to 10 to 11 workers on the picket line at first, and then to six, then banning the practice altogether. Now, the state has graciously allowed the coal miners in Bessemer in Brookwood to have two people on the picket line. Oh, we're so thankful to the state, to our overlords in the government. John Deere workers and Kellogg's workers also saw this tactic used against them as well. And so I'm watching Striketober unfold, right, like everybody else, and the boss making use of state power to repress protests that can in almost no case be called mass pickets. (laughs) And I thought that it would be interesting to learn more about the history of state repression of the picket and specifically uh, the repression of mass picketing. My friend Daniel, who is in law school, recommended looking up our next guest, and I was not disappointed. Mr. Ahmed White is a professor of law and the Nicholas Rosenbaum Professor of Law Chair at the University of Colorado. He got his law degree at Yale, and he has been doing a lot of work lately on the history of law and labor relations. He is the author of a book and the author of an upcoming book titled Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies in the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Uh, Mr. White, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so All much right. for joining us. All right. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So a lot of your work focuses on mass picketing as a tactic um, and its successes and defeat. The injunctions that were issued against working folks last year and are still in effect for our sisters and brothers in Brookwood, they weren't actually responses to anything that could be reasonably be called mass pickets, right? That's right. I mean, mass mass pickets or mass picketing is an inherently ambiguous concept. Uh, No one has a definite notion of where mass picketing begins or ends, but uh, the instances here were, 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 not, were not particularly indicative of that, and, and that's typical. 
um, when you get these injunctions. They're, they're actually seldom premised on, uh, on mass picketing because mass picketing isn't engaged in very often uh, by workers uh, anymore. So what is a mass picket then? Well, you know, again, it's never been perfectly clear uh, what mass picketing is. Um, there's a long history in this country of banning picketing. And until the 1930s, these bans on picketing, often by judges uh, in the form of injunctions, were, um, were, were seldom contested, um, were, uh, were usually regarded as perfectly legitimate. In the 1930s, when um, there was a round of, of, of reformist legislation passed in Congress, uh, picketing became, let's say, presumptively legal. Uh, when there was, by the 1940s, uh, a kind of concerted backlash against that and against labor rights in general, one of the issues that the enemies of organized labor raised was the specter of mass picketing. And they, meaning people in Congress, including those who ultimately secured the enactment of the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, uh, never had a clear idea what mass picketing was or wasn't. Uh, they figured correctly that if they could ban it in some way or another, um, the, the risks of mass picketing and the cost inherent in that ambiguous definition would fall on workers. In other words, if there were doubts whether picketing was mass picketing or not, workers uh, would bear uh, the burdens of that. I see. So mass picketing, how would you define it then? Like in, in, in your research, when you're looking at, at, at mass picketing, what, what are the kind of things that you, would, you, you were looking at? Well, the, the, the one factor is, is just size. But again, that's not, uh, um, that's not reducible to any particular number. It never really has. Um, under federal law, mass picketing is banned by, uh, by Section 8B1 of the National Labor Relations Act. There's a kind of interesting story there because the ban there isn't an explicit one. It's implicit. It's a matter of the legislative history and intent, and the courts and the NLRB have, uh, have taken that for granted. So if you read 8B1, it doesn't say uh, anything about mass picketing. Instead, it talks about uh, unions or their agents acting in a coercive um, way or interfering with or restraining um, other workers in their exercise of their right not to be, not to be involved in union activity. That's been interpreted as the Congress intended uh, to, to bar mass picketing. But again, there's no particular number uh, that defines what mass picketing is. Uh, instead, the National Labor Relations Board and the, and the courts enforcing that federal provision tend to look at um, how coercive or how restraining or how, uh, or how, uh, or how much the, the protest activity interferes with the right of other workers. It's a very vague and ambiguous concept. Mm -hmm. I think that's and, how it's intended, and, and, that, and that works to the benefit of employers and their allies. 
Right. And that's basically, you know, the, the quote unquote rights of workers not to engage in union activity. This is this is more or less the right to cross a picket line that this section of of the NLRA is supposed to be protecting. And so that that is one way that uh, that maybe we can think about mass picketing as as differentiated from from normal picketing is that um it is more difficult for a worker to actually cross that picket line, like physically, because there's so many people there that you just can't cross it, right? That's right. Brass tacks, that's what it's about. And if you look at the early cases interpreting uh, this provision, the federal provision, uh, it didn't take much. I mean, that's on the slightest interference with uh, even inconvenience uh, with the, the right of a scab to cross the line was for some courts quite enough. And that was a big change in a short period of time uh, in federal labor law. When the, when the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, was first enacted in 35 and first became effective in the late 30s, it wasn't difficult to find courts who were, let's just say, far more realistic about uh, this issue and about uh, the realities of picketing and what it took for a picket line to be effective. And, and therefore, we're not quick, we're not so quick to say just because someone was somewhat inconvenienced uh, mm -hmm. that therefore uh, something right. terrible happened. Now, back then, the issue was whether an employer could fire uh, a striker or a picketer because that person uh, interfered with someone who was crossing uh, the picket line. That's still an issue. But nowadays, after Taft-Hartley, there's also... The question of whether the employer or uh, or or the NLRB uh, ultimately could um, find that an unfair labor practice had occurred and and mm. essentially itself enjoin the picketing. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that um, even a lot of the public kind of of just accepts is that people should have a right to cross a picket line. People should have, you know, that's something that, that I think a lot of people and, and, and companies should have a right, quote unquote, to operate their business during a strike. Um, how would workers who engaged in mass picketing, who did not allow strike breakers, scabs to cross the picket line um, because of their numbers, uh, because of their numbers primarily, I mean, it was not. It, you know, people talk about union thugs, and that was not the primary means by which scabs were prevented from crossing the picket line. It was just that it was physically not possible to do that. And, and there were also sit down strikes and things like this. How would workers who did that defend these actions? Well, you know, you put your finger on something really interesting, and that is uh, the, the kind of historical uh, function of mass picketing in elevating the labor movement. Uh, during this crucial period of growth in the 1930s, late 1930s and through the 1940s, mass picketing was effective, as you mentioned, because of the mere numbers. And usually, mm -hmm. heyday of mass picketing, we might call the period in the, uh, the few years after the end of the Second World War, when there were a great number of strikes, the biggest strike wave in American history by far, uh, with a great number of those strikes involving mass picketing, there was actually very little violence uh, and very, very, almost no serious violence. And what that reflects 
is the fact that mass picketing worked not because people were being beaten up, you know, that happened occasionally, uh, but usually because mass picketing um, signaled to people who would cross a picket line that they shouldn't. Some of them were intimidated, I'm sure. Some of them merely responded uh, to the, the theater of it all. They, they, they mm-hmm. for, was an indication of how many of their fellow workers were on the side of the union and mm-hmm. to them that maybe they should reconsider their thoughts about the underlying issue that provoked the strike. Um, and that's why when it comes down to it, mass picketing was banned at the federal level uh, with mm-hmm. Hartley. It was very effective at making the union movement um, a meaningful force in American politics and economics. Without mass picketing, the question is, how can strikes be effective? Strike is a withholding mm-hmm. labor. For some workers in some circumstances, that's enough. But for a lot of American workers, it's not, uh, particularly where employers have a very broad right to bring in replacement workers, either temporary replacements or if it's an economic strike, of course, permanent replacements. That raises a question, how can you win a strike if if you're limited to to two or five or seven or whatever people on a picket line uh, patrolling in a way that that some court has prescribed, uh, or even don't have an injunction, you're worried that if you bring too many people on the picket line, the employer's going to go and file an unfair labor practice charge uh, against the National Labor Relations Board. Right, right. So we've got about three or four more minutes on the radio, and and then we're going to continue. So folks, if you're listening to us on the radio, you can find us online. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube at the Valley Labor Report. You can continue to listen to this conversation that we're having with Professor Ahmed White from the University of Colorado about the history of mass picketing in the United States. And the last thing that I wanted to, and, and we'll wrap the interview here for the radio, is the injunctions that we saw in 2021. What is the basis for them? Because like I said, these are not mass pickets. These are not pickets that are preventing people from crossing the picket line. And they still had the state come down and say, "Mm, too much. What is the deal there? So that's very interesting and I think quite important. So what I found in studying um, the use of injunctions in in labor, uh, in labor cases, uh, is a consistent theme And that is the ability of the people seeking these injunctions, employers, um, to premise the injunction on an anticipation of violence and disorder that is is often at least far, far, far removed from any present indication that there would be violence or disorder. And the courts have... Um, consistently accepted that argument. So what you have here is a situation where uh, courts, again, routinely issue these injunctions, and they have for decades now, uh, without there being much proof at all that any kind of trouble uh, <laughs> is, 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 is in the offing. It's this anticipation mm-hmm. that there would be trouble. And that's been true of the way the NLRB has... Um, enforced this Section 8B1, in other words, the federal limitations on, uh, on, on mass picketing, but it's also been true as, uh, as your question and your introduction to this, uh, this, this segment indicates, uh, 
in the great number of cases where state courts have done what state courts can do separate from the NLRB, and that is to issue their own injunctions. It's this anticipation of violence and disorder, even when it's not in the offing, uh, even when it's a distant threat, if any threat at all. Now, one, the one other thing I would say, if we have a moment to say this, is that this all happens in a context where employers or their allies very frequently provoke whatever kind of disorder there may be anyway. And when they do that, they provide themselves with a basis for the issuance of these injunctions and never pay much of a price for it. Right. I'm Ed White. Thank you so much. Folks listening on WVNN, we appreciate your time and we will see you next week. All right. So we are off the radio now. Um, and and so, yeah, I'll let you I'll, I'll let you uh, ABC. We can go ahead and cut that. Um, <laughs> I'll let you go ahead and finish your thought there. Was there? Um, uh, oh, no, uh, I'm there? no, no, no. OK, I got to say, um, I am very uh, just excited to even learn about you. Honestly, um, I, I was telling the rest of the crew here this morning. It's, it's always great to find out new people who are ex and you're not new you're just new to me but right. uh, experts in this and you know i'm looking at your bio here uh at the university of colorado and it's like right up our alley mm -hmm. uh, so it's going to be it's going to be fun to dig into some of your research and uh before you go i, I definitely wanted you to have an opportunity to just share um you know give us give us sort of a, a high level summary of what has been the focus of your research uh, as a professor of law focused on unions? What have you been looking at? And, you know, maybe what are some of the, the most, um, one of the things you've studied throughout the past that seemed to resonate so much in 2022? Um, oh, good question. I, so, so my work, I, I started out writing about criminal law and I got kind of bored with that. I think that's a, that's kind of a dead end. Um, um, field to work on if you're if you're if you're a leftist. I mean, if you, if your critique is just a liberal critique, there's always something to say, and I agree with a lot of mm. what people say. But I got it. I, I gradually got more and more into labor stuff, and my focus has come to be labor repression, um, the different ways that that labor is repressed. And what I've come to see is, or what I've come to understand is something I always knew was true. <laughs> Uh, and that is the, the kind of inherent bias of the state um, and, mm -hmm. and the legal system. So m most of the work I've done kind of culminates uh, in, in something like that, sort of limits of the liberal system of labor rights and, um, and, and the way that that contributes to a to this kind of comprehensive system of repression. And one that, as you both know, it doesn't, doesn't bar all kinds of labor protest all the time, but it certainly does bar the most effective kinds of protest right. all the time. Uh, and if I had to sum up everything I've done, that's what it comes down to. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I I'm just confirming what I knew to be true when I was 17. Right. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. right. And, and that's sort of, uh, you know, to think about why Jacob even, was looking for you and invited you on the show because we were watching this happening in Brookwood mm -hmm. and, you know, we know the facts on the ground there and it was, it's just nice to 
hear from somebody who has seen this and studied it for a long time and documented how this has been an ongoing pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's important because sometimes people, I think sometimes people see the government um, as sort of this like neutral force mm-hmm. that is pushed and pulled in different directions. But, you know, in the case of the labor movement, especially, but I think in a lot of areas, it's very clearly not. I mean, it's very clear <laughs> what side they're on, and it's not our side. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's something that we have to deal with mm-hmm. you know, in our organizing. We have to factor that in. And, no, um, that, that's exactly right. I mean, one, one of the most exasperating things in dealing with, you name it, other, other academics, um, especially in law, but other sort of mainstream media people or whoever, is this sense that when the states against labor, I mean, nobody can deny unless they're a total reactionary that the states often uh, on the side of employers. But, but what's exasperating is how often people want to believe that that's just an exceptional thing. That's an aberration. It's maybe all, they had a good reason that time, right? Yeah, it's like, well, or maybe that's how it's, it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, it, this isn't something to say on radio, but it, the, the best analogy might be to like, in a, you know, an abusive, an abusive partner. Like if, if it's if it's always if the abuse is always there, then this person doesn't love you. You know where they stand. Uh, they're fundamentally against you. And I wish people thought that same way about the state and about the legal system. That these are not aberrations. These are these are this these are these are instances of the state telling you where it really stands. Um, right. And I wish people better under outside of circles like this one better understood that. Right, right. Well, yeah. So let's, you know, the we're not constrained by, you know, breaks or anything like this now. So let, let let's back up a little bit because you mentioned that the law and the state has consistently banned the most effective sorts of protest and picketing and, and mass picketing, for an example, sit down strikes, for an example. Um, the so let's illustrate for a bit, and, and you do that in in one of your articles. And I, I would recommend folks. I mean, it's like a, a you know, it, it's a it's a scholarly article. Um, the title is "Workers Disarmed," um, and, and the link is in the show notes. Uh, but it, it's a fantastic article. Article, and you do that in this article of, uh, and you lay out how effective mass picketing specifically was for working folks. So can you tell us about its rise as a tactic and illustrate its successfulness for us. Yeah. So before the 1930s, workers um, did whatever they could in a context where almost everything they engaged in was presumptively or potentially illegal. Um, That changed in the 30s. But what didn't initially change, in other words, you've got this this law enacted in 1935 that seemed to protect workers' rights to organize, to engage in protests and collective bargaining. For a couple of years, most big employers just ignored that while trying to get the Supreme Court to declare it unconstitutional. And there's a great story, an important story in American history about how workers responded to that by organizing, by saying, well, we're going to make the law effective. The law isn't giving us rights. We're going to assert those rights and make the law effective. And so that's the story. That's a story of mass picketing, but also of sit-down strikes. 
Um, and so you had this massive wave of sit-down strikes in 19, beginning in late 1936 and through the first half of 1937. And um, some of my colleagues, uh, Jim Pope um, and uh, uh, Drew Hansen, um, have argued persuasively, I think, that this was a major, major reason that the Wagner Act was found constitutional by the Supreme Court in April of 1937. Um, anyway, just to answer your question, uh, no sooner that that happened than the courts and the police started cracking down on sit-down strikes. And in 1939, the Supreme Court basically ruled sit-down strikes were illegal. They followed that up in 1942 with another case involving some workers striking on a, on a ship that kind of put the nail in the coffin of sit-down strikes. It said sit-down strikes are basically categorically, almost categorically illegal. In that context, workers turn more and more to mass picketing uh, as an effective means of asserting labor rights. So the Wagner Act, is constitutional. But as we all know, the Wagner Act doesn't give workers a contract. It doesn't compel employers uh, to, um, to recognize them unless they've got a majority of workers signed up. So you've still got to be active and effective. And that's where workers turn to mass picketing. Um, and it, it really blossomed in the early 1940s and into the mid-1940s and late 1940s uh, as, an effective, um, as an effective tactic. And that's, again, why the Congress tried to declare it, not try, did uh, essentially declare it unconstitutional in 1947. And in the meantime, state courts were continuing to issue injunctions uh, themselves, uh, banning mass picketing or disruptive picketing or picketing they thought might become disruptive or whatever. Uh, and what they did, what they were able to do was gradually to get more and more licensed to do that in a context where initially there was some question whether state courts could still assert their jurisdiction uh, in a world where now you've got a federal labor law that's governing mm -hmm labor relations, there was some question whether state courts authority issue injunctions would be preempted um, by this new federal law. In other words, barred because of the supremacy of the federal government. Um, that was cleared up in the 1940s too, that state courts can issue these injunctions as long as they don't try to meddle with um, the particulars of the labor law. In other words, long as they don't try to, to rewrite, as it were, the Wagner Act and its provisions, um, as long as their injunctions are focused on order uh, and, and, and the threat of violence or, or, or interference with uh, public access, as long as they're focused on that, they, they pretty much have carte blanche to issue injunctions. Right. Well, and as you mentioned, it can be based on just their imagining mm -hmm. of anticipated <clears throat> threats or violence it doesn't have to really be concretely tied to any real threats they don't have to have evidence that you know there's uh troublemakers uh right. preparing to make trouble 
just just the fear um it, it seems to be enough to get the courts on their side and you know as you're talking something that really resonates with me is that in the labor movement we we go back to the 30s uh, often as kind of uh, the peak of our power and our our size the 30s and immediate you know post-war period and so many of those weapons that we had tactically uh, have been outlawed um, from the mass picket to uh, our, you know, sympathy strikes and, and solidarity strikes. Um, that, I think, has uh, boxed us in as a movement. And there's, I think, been a natural trend to just operate within those legal confines. That seem, you know, it's kind of a natural thing. We institutionalize. We have official tax status. We have staffers and salaries, and so we've got to follow the law. We can't, mm-hmm. we can't be reckless. Uh, and it almost, it, it feels, you know, you, you brought up uh, uh, abusive relationship earlier as a metaphor. So I'm, I'm gonna bring this one up. Feels like we've been domesticated, mm. uh, and, and you know, had our back broken a little bit and and we have to operate within these very strict confines. Um, So that that's a long way of leading me to my question, which would be given that the mass picket and so many other tactics that we know worked in the past are illegal. Should the labor movement be looking at taking the risk uh, of, you know, going outside those small, narrow legal confines, or should we uh, be looking at, are there new tactics that they haven't figured out to ban yet <laughs> that we need to be really uh, focused on? I, I just don't, you know, don't know if you have any uh, thoughts there, but I'd be curious to hear it. Well, I, I, I think you raise a, a crucial question. Uh, I know you are a professor of law, and I don't want you to say anything. <laughs> say, get, get me in trouble, yeah. <laughs> in- <laughs> uh, but though you raise a crucial question and, and one that I think has to be on the table, what, what is the, the value of, 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 of being legal? And I, I'm not saying that to, say, um, to endorse engaging in criminal acts or whatever. People have to decide for themselves what they're going to do in this world. Um, but not everything that's illegal is criminal either. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my colleagues, a few of my colleagues among law professors, uh, have have begun to raise this issue. Like, what's what's the real value of the NLRB system to workers now? Um, when, as you put it quite correctly, so much of what was effective um, 70, 80 years ago is illegal now anyway. Uh, when the NLRB and NLRA do as much to constrain what workers can do to limit workers' rights and prerogatives as they do to assist workers. And, you you know, you noted, uh, yeah, unions, if they are legitimate, have to have lawyers and staff. I mean, I completely understand that, being a lawyer uh, myself. But one of the problems with that approach is even to the extent that it works, who who has the the greater resources to play Mm -hmm. that game anyway? I mean, there are a lot of great labor lawyers out there. I know them. I respect them. But... Legal representation costs a lot of money, a lot of time. Even if it worked perfectly, you're dealing with people, big employers, whose resources are often much, much, much more extensive. They can, they can win that battle 
often, even against the best, most conscientious, most sacrificial of uh, labor lawyers on the union side of things. In terms of new tactics, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to starting to get up there in years a little bit. And I, I you know, I don't know what's, what's out there. I just know that um, since the advent of the internet and then social media, people have been in the labor side have been have been waiting for the next new thing. And it's it's never mm. come. Um, right. it's, it's never quite come that, that, that it was it was going to be the Internet and then then email and then the various mm. uh, social media platforms were going to replace the old tactics that uh, were no longer effective. And I'm not denigrating those efforts. I'm just saying um, nothing's been the kind of panacea or the magic bullet. Right. Yeah, and I, I, I know there are a lot of um, really uh, smart and, and conscientious young, often young organizers out there and, um, and, and you know, more power to them. Uh, maybe, maybe something will, uh, will come around and, uh, and, and help change things. Um, just hasn't happened yet. Right. Well, and, and the, the thing that has has been the most effective, like you said, has been, um, you know, withholding our labor and and basically not allowing others to contribute their labor, you know, where where there are people that want to cross that picket line. And and, you know, the the rise of mass pickets is a tactic you mentioned in your article that during a one year period that formed the core of, quote, America's late American labor's greatest upsurge. There were 4,600 strikes, including some 5 million workers. Um, 2021, Striketober, there were like 300-something strikes and some hundreds, hundreds of thousands of workers, you know? So, and we have multitudes more people in the country, mm-hmm. several more workers, hun- uh, you know, more than 100 million workers in this country. And so the, the, the difference there is huge. And the when I asked you earlier, like, how did how did workers justify, you know, because today this this right, this property rights and right to go cross a picket line is kind of take it for take it for granted. And I think that was contested back then when workers decided to take this action to say, no, like, we don't believe you have a right to cross our picket line. We don't believe that you have a right to work here while we are striking do you think that there was a that that they spent a whole lot of time philosophically and morally thinking through these things and that there was a, a really sturdy justification in their minds or that they just recognized that this was power and it and it was more of a, it was more of a tactical calculation or a philosophical justification that they had in their minds what do you think was was going on when people did this Oh, a little of both. I mean, depending on who was involved. I mean, I think for people on the left wing of the labor movement, there was a, an attempt to, to ground this in, uh, in, in, in leftist politics and philosophy, uh, whether you're talking about sort of IWW syndicalist or even kind of communist party uh, types in the 1930s and, and 1940s. I think for the mainstream of the labor movement, it was it was largely a practical thing, but but not entirely. I mean, if you look at, and I can say a little bit about this in the article you mentioned, if you look at the legislative history of the Taft-Hartley Act, when uh, a number of these union people went and testified in Congress, some of them did make an effort to justify 
mass picketing. And it did seem at least somewhat earnest. You had Walter Ruther, who was, you know, no radical, certainly not by 1947, basically reminding people in Congress that if you're going to talk about this issue in terms of violence and right and wrong in that sense, then he told them quite rightly they had the issue backwards. He said, mm-hmm. you, let's, let, let me remind you who, in, in, in so many words, he said, let me remind you who was doing the beating and the killing of people uh, mm-hmm. in this country. Um, not very long ago was, I think, the phrase he used, and, and quite rightly, in the 1930s, uh, scores, probably a couple of hundred people altogether were killed in labor disputes, and, and the vast majority of them were on the union side. And right. the president of the, the Communications Workers Union, who was even farther to the right, m- much more of a conventional trade unionist than Ruther, uh, said something really interesting to the Congress when they were debating mass picketing. Uh, he refused to condemn it. So these, these, con- these uh, I think, con- uh, Republican congressmen were, were trying to box him in and say, we want you to condemn mass picketing. And he kept refusing to do it. And finally, kind of exasperated, he said something like, um, I view, he said, I'm not going to sympathize. In so many words, he said, I'm not going to sympathize with a guy who uh, is trying to cross the picket line. That's mm-hmm. what you're trying to get me to do. He said, that guy is like the guy who won't obey the traffic rules, uh, who decide mm-hmm. that the red light is for other people and not for him. And I thought that was really interesting because that put a finger on something fundamental. Labor and labor rights are about solidarity. Uh, they don't work without solidarity. And this idea that was consecrated with Taft-Hartley, the right of dissidents, of essentially of scabs, placement workers, whoever, freeloaders, not to go along with the union is entirely antithetical to the very thing that is at the core of a functional labor movement this business of solidarity. And this guy, Bernie, uh, Bill Bernie, who was the the president of the Communications Workers Union, he understood that. And I think everyone on some level in the labor movement back then understood that. Well, and I think that there's got to, there's, you know, there's a certain amount of maybe a a belief that labor has certain amount of of democratic rights in the workplace in the same way that you know the the traffic lights that he meant that, that he mentioned they didn't they're not you know there aren't traffic light trees that we have to obey by some natural law they arise from ostensibly uh, ideally democratic processes of electing governments and and governments uh, executing laws and city ordinances and things like this. And we have a democratic right to bind our neighbors to certain standards and to certain. And, and you know, we have a right democratically to say that when this light is red, you can't go. And mm-hmm. and uh, and and I, you know, and I think that I think that workers have a democratic right to say that, you know, when the light is red, you can't go. You know, you can't. Uh, and and the picket line is is a red light. The picket line is a red light. And 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 we are and 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 when workers say democratically that that there's a red light here, I think that that is. I, I don't think that that even even today union members see. Uh, um, I don't think that th- that they conceive of it in that way, and that they believe it has as much legitimacy 
as it ought to. Mm-hmm. No, that's a, that's, I think that is a, that is a, a great point, a tremendously important point. I, I mentioned a few minutes ago my friend and colleague, uh, Jim Pope, he's a law professor, just retired at uh, Rutgers. And Jim wrote a, just a fascinating and very important article um, maybe a couple of decades ago about the sit-down strikes called Worker Lawmaking. I forget the, the journal it's in. But what, what Jim argued, I think this is, this is just absolutely crucial, he looked at the history of these sit-down strikes, and he made, I think, uh, the, the essential point that you have to look at what those workers do, were doing in those sit-down strikes as an exercise in lawmaking, mm-hmm. not just any legal thing they were doing, which is the conventional way of seeing, oh, they were violating the rights of private property and trespass and all of that. Jim said, no, look at them and look at the way they understood themselves what they were doing. They were trying to assert a different understanding of what the law meant or should mean, and one that was not any the less legitimate than the kinds of notions of private property or trespass that were being used against them. And you could say the very same thing about something like mass picketing, that workers have a prerogative, and to some extent back in the day they did, try to assert their notion of what is legitimate, what is disorderly, what is coercive, what is interfering with a person's, um, a person's right to, uh, to go to work? What, what does the right to work even really mean? Um, and I think if workers could recapture that, I'm not saying that's easy <laughs> or that right, I have right. some program, but I think if workers could recapture that kind of spirit, um, it would go a long way towards revitalizing uh, the labor movement. Again, it's not easy because a lot, you end up in jail doing this or, God forbid, mm-hmm. seriously injured or killed on a picket line. That happened all the time 70, 80, 90 years ago. Um, but but if, if workers could recapture that spirit, it would go a long way towards rebuilding uh, the labor movement. I I think there's a lot that y'all just uh, discussed there that that to me speaks to the sh- the social contract mm. uh, in the way in which you know to the extent that we even have a social contract anymore that anyone could pinpoint it's certainly been I think individualized and much less of a collective nature uh, than it was 70 80 years ago in the time period we're talking about and another thing that you mentioned. Uh, that I think is is a major, you know, difference between now and then was that there was a left. Mm-hmm. There was such a thing as the left, <laughs> um, and it was, uh, you know, such a monumental part of the labor movement. And, you know, as mass pickets and other tactics were outlawed, the left itself was purged from mm-hmm. the labor movement. And, you know, we've yet to recover from that. So I think those are some of the things that, you know, if you look at these trends historically over the past seven, eight decades, you know, we we had our our major weapons taken away. We had some of the, uh, you know, the most, um, let's see, energetic, uh, perhaps, uh, factions of the movement um, taken away uh, by the purging of the left. And I think all those things have, you know, again, go back to like the domestication piece of 
how the movement has has changed from a militant and, and radical social movement that was, as, as you described and your colleague described, making his own law, essentially, mm-hmm. um, to now much more institutionalized, uh, much more dependent on, um, you know, playing within the rules, the rules that are certainly not written for us or by us, uh, but are for us to abide or else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, those we, we could probably talk about this all day, but it just... Uh, those were some things that stuck out to me and definitely uh, we'll be looking up Jim Pope from Rutgers as well. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, no, that's professor, very... you're, you're teaching, you're teaching us. <laughs> I, I don't know how your week went, but uh, at least on uh, today, yeah. Saturday, you can, you can be assured you taught some folks today. Yeah. I, I was telling when I told, when, when Daniel suggested you um, and I, and I found you, it's like you couldn't have created somebody who was doing work more precisely for <laughs> more precisely about what I wanted to talk about. Um, and so, you know, th- these tactics effectiveness, there was a really strong, you know, we, we've, we've hit on some of the backlash to that, but there was a really strong incentive to undercut and delegitimize and push back against these tactics either by hook or by crook. Right. Um, yes, most definitely. I mean, this was, this was, this was quite well organized. Uh, I mean, if I, I think if I get your question, right. Uh, if you look at um, at the, the the opposition to not just labor rights in general, but effective forms of labor protest, um, it was not only organized; it was um, it was well organized, and and you could see that in the way it changed in reaction to different circumstances. So initially, when the Wagner Act was passed, the, the big employers. Uh, response was, we're just going to, we're going to ignore this. This will go away. The Supreme Court had invalidated essentially the most of the first New Deal. They'll invalidate this and we'll pay some lawyers to, uh, to bring that about. That failed. They changed their strategy uh, almost overnight. The strategy was, okay, uh, we'll get the Wagner Act repealed. And they spent the next decade from about 37 to 47 um, First, trying to get it repealed. They saw that wasn't going to go anywhere. So then they thought, well, we don't have to get it repealed. We'll just get it amended. This will work to mm-hmm. our advantage. And that, that gave rise to Taft-Hartley. Um, and then I think for a couple of decades, they were more or less resigned to uh, labor rights, to, to some, some level of functional labor rights. But as we all know, by the 1970s and 1980s, they changed their perspective again. And they said, we, what we'll do now is destroy the labor movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have all but done that. If you look at right. your representation, it was organized at every level around the big employer associations, mm-hmm. the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, the, the Business Roundtable, the big industry groups, the Iron and Steel Institute, um, it's amazing how well organized this 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 always right. was. In in the you know state legislatures in D.C. and and like I said, by hook or by crook, one of the things that you mentioned in the article, and I'll quote a bit here: 
Besides giving rise to the Memorial Day massacre mentioned at the outset of this article, clashes between SWOC picketers and police, company agents, and National Guardsmen left at least six and possibly eight Unionists dead and well over 300 people injured in Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And there's not a single instance of, of quote-unquote, union violence that, that looks like that. That's just not something that happens on the other side. And so you've got this assault on on working people's rights to to picket and and to even exist as as a union, as an organization in all across the country. And so the and and like you said, that leaves us today with, you know, uh, with a situation where state judges in Tuscaloosa can say, people got their feelings hurt and and there was and they had feelings about fear or something and so now we're going to limit the picket line to two people when did we was as soon as mass picketing started becoming like uh de facto illegal did we immediately see the anticipation of violence or intimidation or coercion used as a justification for these injunctions or did it take a little bit of time to get to where we are today it took some time, but you know, one of the ironies here is that if you plotted out uh, the serious violence, the rate of serious violence in labor relations in the United States, it remained quite high through the mid and late 1930s, and then it began to fall, and it, it fell dramatically. So only a relatively small number of people have been killed in labor disputes since uh, the end of the Second World War. But what that did... Um, and this is the irony of it, because, of course, no one's in favor of people getting seriously hurt or killed. But the irony here is that um, the threshold of what was tolerable in terms of violence has steadily ratcheted, or not just violence, but unrest has steadily ratcheted downward. So you can find in, in even in Supreme Court opinions, you mentioned uh, the violence, uh, quoting from the article of mine, uh, violence in uh, what was called a little steel strike um, in 1937, where about uh, 16 or 18 people were killed in different in different clashes. Um, in the wake of that strike, you can, you can find a U.S. Supreme Court opinion where the Supreme Court said, basically, uh, if the labor law is going to function, the people administering it, including the courts, have to understand that there's going to be a certain level of disorder and a certain level of violence. And the court wasn't saying, oh, we're going to... It's a case about whether these strikers were entitled to be reinstated after this big mm-hmm. strike. Uh, and the court validated the NLRB's ruling that most all of them had a right to be reinstated, even though the employers were saying they were the authors of violence. As you point out, the workers right. in the strike hadn't killed anybody. Uh, it mm-hmm. was the and their agents and police who had killed 16, 18 people. Anyway, the Supreme Court said, look, um, you can't just say that workers involved in a strike that's violent are not entitled to be reinstated. Yeah, if someone tried to kill another person, that person is disentitled to reinstatement. But just because they were involved in a picket line fracas doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that the employer can deny them Employment. That was in 1940 when the the Supreme Court decided this case. As time has passed here, 
the threshold for the courts of what is intolerable disorder, what is sufficiently threatening of violence has diminished further and further and further and further until you get kind of absurd things. Um, like you and I, Jacob, were talking about this earlier, the, the injunction issued here in Colorado uh, mm. against the King Supers, the Krogers, uh, Picketers. You know, I read the injunction and the, the claims that uh, it was premised on and they were absurd. Um, mm. Someone playing loud music on the, in front of the store. Um, <laughs> some people were, I mean, and, and epithet was supposedly, you 8,000 people out on strike and, and epithet was supposedly, you, we don't know if that even happened. We don't know what the epithet was. Uh, the threshold of what is intolerable has, 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 has worked its way so far downward uh, now. Mm. Uh, as you've noted uh, several times, quite rightly, um, that is uh, the underpinning of so many of these devastating uh, restrictions on picketing. Right. It's interesting to hear you describe that in terms of the Colorado pickets, because, you know, I'm thinking back to my time as a high school teacher. And, I, I, you know, if maybe managers at Kroger or the courts had ever just visited a high school hallway, they're going to hear more than one. Uh, <laughs> they may hear some uh, bad language and some yelling and yeah. some loud music and, uh, you know, folks being a little bit rowdy. Yeah, I mean, good uh, grief. So it, I, I have a I, maybe I'm biased. I am biased. But uh, my guess is that that picket line uh, was no rowdier than uh you know, most uh, most anywhere in our state on a Saturday in the fall during college football season. Mm. Um, you know, so it's it is absurd. Uh, but something that you mentioned about that Supreme Court uh, ruling back in 1940 is that it seems to me that even justices of the Supreme Court, you know, clearly, you know, the elite of the elite had some recognition that there was conflict between employer and employee not i mean you know i'm not saying that they were uh admitting that marx was right we have a bourgeoisie <laughs> versus proletariat driving history but you know it seems like there was you know among all sides more of a, a understanding that there was contradiction there and there was mm -hmm. conflict there and in the 80 years since, it seems like we have done everything we can as a society and through media and culture to sort of mystify that contradiction and conflict mm -hmm. and erase it from consciousness. Oh, absolutely. If, if you look, there's an interesting kind of backstory here. The, the Supreme Court um, wasn't, you know, in the, in the late 30s and early 40s uh, uniformly on labor side, as we know, but, but it was occasionally. Um, and at, at the forefront of that, in the lead on the court, were some interesting figures. Um, one of them was Alabama's own Hugo Black. Mm -hmm. um, you also had William O. Douglas. And then maybe the most fascinating of those people was a guy named, um, named Frank Murphy, uh, who was the governor of Michigan during the big sit-down strikes, including the big GM sit-down strike in Flint in the winter of 36-37. And he, he distinguished himself by refusing to, he called out the National Guard, but he refused to unleash them 
on the sit-down strikers, and that that abetted the UAW strikers in winning that strike. And then a few years later, he ends up on the Supreme Court, partly because his his actions during that strike cost him the the governorship in Michigan. And so Roosevelt put him on the Supreme Court. But these things are sort of interconnected in interesting ways. He he was then the author of a case called Thornhill versus Alabama in 1940, which was the high water mark in the Supreme Court ruling that picketing was protected under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Until that decision, uh, it was not clear that people had a constitutional right to picket. And then this guy, Frank Murphy, authored the Supreme Court decision that said, yes, you absolutely do have a First Amendment right to engage in picking. It was a labor case out of Tuscaloosa. And then every, uh, every case after that, that the Supreme Court, just about every case after Thornhill that the Supreme Court decided on picketing, eroded that right, <laughs> uh, limited, it further, limited that right further. So there's some interesting interconnections there, and they have to do with, they rest on, um, the fact that in a lot of ways, you know, we think of, 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 of progress as a kind of linear thing. In a lot of ways, the Supreme Court, some of these Supreme Court justices were further to the left, way further to the left, mm. especially on labor issues back in the 1930s right. and 40s, than anybody you'll find on the court today. <laughs> yeah, that, and I, I was not familiar with that uh, Alabama connection, so that's really cool. Appreciate you sharing that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, Professor White, I really, really appreciate your time. This has just been um, that this has been fantastic. Uh, exactly what I was looking for. Um, was there anything that uh, that, that you wanted to make sure that you mentioned before we wrapped up our conversation? I can't think of anything. Uh, the main thing is just to thank you all for having me. It's my, been my pleasure. <laughs> Uh, what is and and the, you have you've got a book coming out um, in the next year or so, but you have a book already, and I, I'm planning on on reading it. Uh, it's called "The Last Great Strike: Little Steel, the CIO, and the Struggle for Labor Rights in New Deal America," uh, University of California Press, 2016. Um, folks can check out that. Folks can check out your um, scholarly articles. Fantastic stuff there, and the. Uh, the new book that you've got come out coming out. You said it's in October. Is is when you're expecting it to be released? Should, should be, should be in, out in October. Yep. Under the Iron Heel: The Wombleys and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. We will uh, hope to have you on again. Thank you for being so generous with your time, Absolutely. and uh, have a great Saturday. Okay. You bet. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. All right. Awesome. Uh, so you've been listening to, like I said, Ahmed White from uh, University of Colorado. Uh, you can find his work uh, in those places. Uh, we got a, a couple more segments that we wanted to get to um, because they are timely. Um, going to talk about the potential SCOTUS nomination really quick. But before we get to that. Yeah, uh, that that came to mind as uh, mm -hmm. Professor White yeah, was discussing yeah. the Supreme Court justices. I mean, here you have some folks who, you know. 80 years ago and maybe weren't the uh, most progressive minded folks, but who had a better record on unions and labor rights than the pick of the progressives. Yeah. Quote yeah, unquote. yeah. Yeah. So uh, before we get to that, let's go to last week in Southern labor. 
Last week in Southern Labor, we Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell. How the good old union has come in here to well. A battle in the heart of Alabama caught attention. Coal miners in one community have been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single largest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. If we ain't all free, none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. There was some shady, shady things happening on the side of We'll be looking for updates on that. Five lab techs at the at Steel of West Virginia in Huntington, West Virginia, deadlocked two to two, thus not joining Steelworkers Local 37. The staff of the DCCC, which is the Democratic Party's Congressional Elections Campaign arm, are unionizing with Teamsters Local 238. You'll recall the DNC staffers just joined SEIU, so now a change to win is fully integrated with the Democratic Party staff. Love to see that. Um, and unrelatedly, but obviously relatedly, the Bessemer Alabama revote is fast approaching. As Bloomberg reports, nearly half of the 6,100 eligible voters are new to the warehouse since the vote a year ago due to Amazon's high turnover rate. Um, Ballots went out yesterday on that. We, we talked a little bit more about that earlier in the show, and we'll be giving you updates as the campaign continues. In strikes and bargaining, four months into the USW Local 40 strike at Special Metals, local politicians have decided to suggest that the strike should end with Senator Shelley Moore Capito and the Huntington, West Virginia Council speaking out. Uh, so, look, Richard Shelby, Tommy Tuberville, what are you doing? You got a Republican colleague coming out in support of striking workers, and these folks are going on a year now in Brookwood, Alabama, going on a year on strike, and nothing, nothing from conservatives and uh, <laughs> and, and conservative and, and conservative politicians. It's insane. Um, Elsewhere in West Virginia, Teamsters Local 175 is apparently considering striking Coca-Cola over the company's failure to pay its workers. More fallout from the Kronos ransomware attack that's affecting payroll across the country since December. Educators in Birmingham, Alabama last week and Chesterfield, Virginia organized sick outs. School bus drivers in Jefferson Davis County, (laughs) Jefferson Davis County, that's great. Mississippi struck for an hour one hour over the district paying double for extra drivers without hiking regular driver pay and won the pay hike. That's a hell of an hour. That's like cool as hell. A federal judge granted rail operators BNSF an injunction against 17,000 union rail workers who had moved towards striking over a new and absolutely insane attendance policy, which Joe Demanuel Hall at Labor Notes summed up well. The unions are now taking pains to tell their members not to take action, which is never a good sign for fans of labor peace. 
It is worth remembering that this BNSF injunction is technically totally separate from the much larger 100,000 worker rail bargaining coalition that has just filed for impasse mediation for an impasse slash mediation and could soon start a countdown on an absolutely massive national rail strike. But it's very hard to tell whether or not that's possible. That's even plausible. Uh, because some of the key factors being the global pandemic and supply chain meltdown, disintegrating political orders, all that kind of stuff. And uh, for anyone who's curious to hear a little bit more, I haven't read that piece from Labor Notes that Jonah mentioned, uh, but our, our friend Maximilian Alvarez with Real News Network just put out an episode mm-hmm. this week where he interviewed a longtime uh, railroad uh, worker who has retired who gave some, you know, firsthand testimony about these attendance policies. So really recommend that. It was great stuff. Yes, yes. Great stuff. Speaking of massive critical industries facing a strike deadline, um, the USW's National Oil Bargaining Program, covering 30,000 workers, mostly along the Gulf Coast, um, is facing a contract expiration of February 1, which was... Tuesday. <laughs> and the latest reports are that the un- or that things are intensifying and the latest offer was insulting per the union. All this against the backdrop of a refinery industry that has made its union busting aims quite explicit over the past year with lockouts in Minnesota and Louisiana, the latter of which is very much still going uh, going strong. And if I had to guess, is probably being held up as an implicit threat against the union during these negotiations. The union appears to have had better luck at the Newport News, Virginia shipyard with Steelworkers Local 8888 having reached a tentative deal after rejecting the last one in December and amping up their strike talk. So that's very cool. Speaking of massive contract negotiations not going well, though, 14,008 AT&T workers with CWA in 36 states are negotiating a new contract as their one-year extension expires on February the 12th. As the bargaining committee put it, we are bargaining in an environment of incredible challenges, including inflation, worker unrest, and the ongoing COVID pandemic. The company offered a benefits proposal right off the bat that was offensive, concessionary, and shows their contempt for their employees. We need all CWA members to be prepared for a fight. We are are going to fight, and we need an army of union members fighting alongside us. So, uh... Those are fighting words. And with just days to go, the National Women's uh, Soccer League Players Association members say they will not report for the first games of the preseason if a contract hasn't been negotiated by then. And they've been bargaining for two two years. Um, And I believe that they got their contract. I think so. Yeah, I think I saw that. Yeah. And in politics, the ghoulish bill to gut public sector unions in Florida advanced through a committee in the legislature this week. Like in a couple other states, it would decertify any public sector union that falls below 50% paying membership while making it much harder for members to pay their dues, thus making that 50% trigger much more likely to be reached. It exempts, of course, police, corrections, and firefighter unions because those are special, special boys. A circuit court ruled to undo a uh, Trump-era policy limiting federal unions' ability to bargain, which is just another step away from the very anti-labor federal policy the Trump administration had implemented. And finally, the FLRA has upheld a decision to decertify the IFPTE's Union for Immigration Judges. 
insane. Absolutely insane. Um, and so the last thing that we wanted to talk about today, the last thing is this wild, wild uh, thing coming out of the Biden administration. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really crazy. The bright spot of the Biden administration has definitely been the NLRB so far. I mean, if you've read any of uh, Jennifer Abruzzo's um, press releases, they have been very, very, very pro-worker and really uh, um, attacking some of the things that employers have taken for granted. And that's been a bright yeah, spot. I mean, yeah. by 2024, we uh, may have all the uh, anti-worker federal policies, you know, from Trump administration gone, uh, which is sad that that's kind of our threshold for success now is, hey, he will at least say nice things about unions and uh, will undo the crap his predecessor did so we can get back to the lovely status quo of 2016. So very disappointing that we haven't seen more i don't know maybe disappointment's not the right word because that would imply that i expected more right um, and i didn't uh in fact i would say it's probably been better than i expected mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. because you're right i i i have been genuinely uh, uh impressed with some of the work that's been done in terms of federal worker uh bargaining issues and uh the nlra but a lot, a lot uh, left to be done. Yes. And uh, he looks like he wants to totally uh, get rid of that. <laughs> yeah, whatever goodwill he's been building, right. you know, the Biden team's been building with the uh, labor movement. And something you've, you've touched on a few times is it's like when they have done something positive for labor, mm-hmm. they don't go out and you know campaign on it or really cheer about it. it's almost like they have some obligation to do some nice things occasionally like they realize they should do that right. for you know if nothing else just to keep the union packs flowing but um but also know that that would make them uh less popular with their corporate donors so right. they are trying to like thread the needle there of not totally alienating the labor movement while not totally alienating uh, the CEOs and, and industry that backs them as well. So, yeah, and, and this, this, newest, uh, this newest candidate that you're about to talk about, that, that could uh, shred whatever goodwill has been built. Yeah. yeah, so everybody knows by now because um, Republicans are like, this is all they're talking about right now, it, uh, that Biden has – pledged to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court, which is, you know, uh, fine. That's good. It, you know, there's yeah, never I'm... been a black woman on the Supreme Court before. And uh, obviously that's not because there were no black women that were meritorious enough to have been on the Supreme Court. It was because of racism. And obviously there are black women today who are qualified and would be good Supreme Court judges. So like, you know, the thing the stupidest thing about this conversation is that there, like people are pretending that there is a person who is the most qualified to be a Supreme court justice and they should be pit like that, that, that person doesn't exist. That's not 
a thing that is in the real world, a person that is the most qualified. Like that doesn't even make sense as a proposition. And the uh, and, you know. and the Republicans have made it very clear their number one qualification is the Federalist Society. Right. Have you been groomed by the, uh, these dark money, shadowy mm-hmm, groups mm-hmm. Uh, who've been operating on billionaires' funds for all these decades? They've been building this bench of creepy uh, reactionary lawyers that they can, you know, put on these judge positions. So and, it's not about like their talent as a lawyer, right. their their uh, you know accomplishments in court, how many decisions they've ruled on. Mm-hmm. That's not really that that's irrelevant to what they're attempting to do uh, by putting their allies on the court. And right, you know, something that is also frustrating about this conversation in particular is that both Democrats and Republicans are obnoxious. Yeah. And it's <laughs> it's not even like it, when we're not trying to be cynical, like everybody knows that this is done like people, you know, and, it, and, and when you start getting to things like at these, these super high levels, like it just, like I said, there's simply not a person that is the most qualified. You have dozens and dozens, hundreds, thousands of people that are qualified for this position. And so there are constituencies that you have that you want to uh, that you want to cater to, that you want to show that you are supportive of them. And so, of the pool of people who meet the minimum qualifications, even even if I don't even know that is frankly have being qualified for Supreme Court justice. Like I don't give a damn, frankly, about your law degree. For all I care, appoint a twenty-four year old Unite Here member that works at a, con- a casino in Las Vegas, and they would be just as good as any of the people that are um, that are that are being. They, that, they'd be more know. likely to have my back. Yeah. So and like the back of of you know, the types of folks who listen to our show and who work exactly. for a living. Exactly. Um, I, I, yeah. So I don't, I don't care that men, but, but let's accept that framing. There's a certain minimum of qualifications that you have to have to be a Supreme court justice, even though that's not in the law. Let's just, but let's stipulate this. There are people uh, uh, like Trump did this. Trump said when he was replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court, he said, it's going to be a woman. And there wasn't this, like nobody cared because like we we were not being children. We weren't being like, precious about it and uh, ronald reagan did the same thing nobody cared because we weren't being children about it and uh the you know like do you seriously think when john mccain picked sarah palin that that was not part of the calculus like because on the democratic side you had potentially and ended up being the first black president so on the republican side they wanted to have a first something as well and like Sarah Palin was not the most qualified person in the United States to be vice president. Of, of course, there was like there was identity involved in that. There was um, political constituency groups involved in that pick. Like that's just that's how it's I'm, done. Like it, we're not children. And besides just the practical realities that you're talking about that everyone engages in all sides. Mm. It is fundamentally a positive development to have the people in charge reflect the people they're in charge yes. of um, governments and the organizations, institutions. Yeah. The, the folks who hold offices should reflect the diversity of the constituencies. Yes. So, you know, I, I just want to make that very, very clear. Right. Um, 
I'm not upset that Joe Biden made that pledge. I'm no. not as upset that he seems intent on keeping that pledge. Mm-hmm. But what it exposes is the limits of that kind of right. identity politics to simply say, well, we're going to make sure that we appoint a black woman. Well, OK, you what can't con- just in well, what kind. Right. Uh, right. Because, uh, you know, what's the what's her name? Like Candace Owens. <laughs> you know, she's a nut job. She's yeah. a black woman. Right. Right. I mean, and and that's I know that's an extreme example, but of course that is the limits of simply like doing like diversity bingo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, oh, we don't have a black woman yet. This this find right. one of those. Check it off the check it off the list. Right. And that's and, and you know, like we we've been critical of some of these things. In the, you can re, you can go back and watch our interview with Paul Prescott about, you know, some of these diversity trainings and, and whether or not they even do what they uh, pretend to do or, you know, like, like we've been critical about this kind of stuff on the show, yeah. but, but, but it's good to have. And it's something that, that people, when you're organizing a union, you want your union, your organizing committee, the leadership of your union to reflect the people that you, uh, uh, that you represent and, and, and your membership. Reflect, Absolutely. Yeah. And that's good. That's good. That's good. But that can't be like, you don't stop okay, there. You don't stop there. As and Cornell so, West, the great Cornell West will say, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. putting black faces in high places. Right. That's not the same as racial justice oh, or equity. Who was it? I was reading uh, uh, an interview in the New Yorker, I think, of Adolph Reed. And he Adolph Reed is a professor at a university and he, he teaches at some of these higher universities. He's got a lot to say about Obama. Yeah. And he said that he taught people like that, like people like Obama. Mm -hmm. And he said that he could tell from these students that they thought the civil rights movement was so that, you know, they could be on the board of Exxon. And that's like not what it was about. Right. You know, I mean, sure, if there's going to be an Exxon and if it's going to have a board that's not elected by workers, maybe it's better that there are black faces on it or it is better that there are black faces on it than not. But that's not what the civil rights movement yeah, was simply, about. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> diversifying the the elites. Yes. Doesn't and, make them any less elite. So, um, and we've all I mean, I, I, I know that I have dealt with uh, supervisors who were women or who were mm-hmm. minorities or who were gay, who were awful to their employees, who were of the same, you know, demographic background. Right. And so what are what are we talking about? We've been talking around it. Uh, the there are a few people on the short list for uh, Supreme Court nomination from uh, President Joe Biden. And one of them is Michelle Childs from South Carolina. She is a South Carolina district court judge and her biggest enthusiast. I'm, I'm reading this from the American prospect, the American prospect. It's in the show notes. The title is Clyburn pushes management side labor attorney for Supreme court. And, and uh, Clyburn is the one that got my, the, the reporting is that Clyburn is the one that got Joe Biden to agree to appoint a black woman to the Supreme court. The first chance that he got, and that's fine. Um, and he's been her biggest backer. Uh, well, so let's see. Let's review her record then. Bloomberg Law has 25 cases registered in which Childs participated during her time at the firm, the firm being uh, Nexon, Pruitt, Jacobs, and Pollard. 
23 of those involved alleged employee employment discrimination or other employment-related civil rights violations. Race and gender were common factors in such suits, and seven such cases entailed race-based job discrimination, and another three involved sex-based job discrimination. In all but two of these instances, Childs was representing the boss, the defendant, Against people, rep, uh, uh, against people alleging race and sex discrimination. <laughs> I mean, mm. in uh, uh, Childs represented Conseco in Green v. Conseco Finance, for example, where uh, the the plaintiff, an African American woman, alleged race and pregnancy discrimination in a situation where the company denied her a promotion and then terminated her outright. Childs represented the boss here. Childs represented the boss, and uh, she eventually withdrew. I don't know why, but she eventually withdrew from the case. But she did represent the boss in this case, and. And and the plaintiff was awarded $193 in damages. The plaintiff won. In Harris versus L&L Wings, a plaintiff alleged near daily sexual assault by a workplace supervisor for years and Childs represented the company. A jury sided with the plaintiff awarding uh, uh, compensatory and punitive damages and even attorney's fees. That's insane. Meanwhile, Nexon Pruitt, where Giles was a partner, has for years boasted of its anti-union services, advertising to firms, hoping to keep their workplace union-free and offering strength in unfair labor practice and union representation issues. The, the firm also warned against the impacts of the PRO Act and uh, the Build Back Better Act. That's insane. Yeah. Like, and <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll say this as someone who has worked closely with attorneys and, you know, for all we say about lawyers, there are plenty of good people who go into law and, and are trying to do the best they can in the system we have. And occasionally when lawyers run for office, as they are prone to do, uh, folks will bring up, you know, Especially if they're a def- criminal defense attorney, right? You'll, inevitably, someone's going to go look up like the sleaziest or most violent, uh, just awful client that they had. Right. So, oh yeah, they defended this child molester. They defended this murderer. Mm-hmm. Well, I- I'm willing to uh, to look at that in the sense of their job was to be a criminal defense attorney. Right. And. I believe everyone's entitled to, uh, you know, a good defense and, and due mm-hmm. process. And so if they were doing their job effectively for their client, I'm not going to hold that against them uh, if they defended some people that were, in fact, guilty. I, that's, you know, so it's not like nitpicking with someone's legal career. If this had been just like a few cases she was involved in, if this was just part of a, a, a very broad legal career, even that I think would be different. But what you've described with her and, and you know, the reporting with American Prospect and from others, this is, a, is, I mean, this is her career, is working in union busting and uh, for the employers against workers who have been discriminated against and who have been exploited. 
that's a problem. Right. That's I mean, if that's your specialty, that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, this it's, uh, you know, people, public defenders who defend murderers and rapists and, and the, these sorts of horrible, horrible, horrible people, they are like the most important people in our society, basically. You know, because these uh, like it's important, like Adam said, to have uh, that the people have a right to a defense. Um, but you as a lawyer, like it's different being a public defender. You make like 40, maybe fifty thousand dollars a year, like you're overworked. Um, you know, you're not making when you are at a level, you choose the firm that you go to work for. And you know that this is, a you know, working for big law in this way that's a choice it's a choice is what i'm trying to say and you it 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 reflects something about you that you would choose to work for a firm that advertises its anti-union services there are several law firms that do not do this it says something about you that you would be willing to work on a case for a big corporation like not as a public defender, but as somebody making, you know, probably thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars an hour on these cases for big corporations against people alleging sex, sex and race discrimination. Like that says something about you as a person and as a judge, as a potential judge and as a lawyer that people have a right to be concerned about. And people in the labor movement have been voicing some concerns. The Washington Post has some reporting on that. Larry Cohen, former president of the Communication Workers of America, said, quote, her labor record, her years as a management side lawyer, definitely paint her as somebody who could just as easily be a Republican and certainly has no record supporting workers' rights. This is of great concern to many of us. She spent years on the wrong side. Yeah, don't paint this as a, you know, victory against discrimination when her legal career has been protecting employers who discriminate. Right. Okay, right. you can't uh it's uh yeah, that that's just a bridge too far. I'm sorry. I, I can take a I, I accept that no nominee they have is going to be perfect. They're all going to mm-hmm. have issues you know, that I take with their record. Um, but like you said, there yeah. at some point you kind of chose to make this your thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that you should have, uh, yeah. Spent your career as a public defender and working for the ACLU or, or whatever, you know, you do you boo, but a union, but buster? maybe you shouldn't be, maybe you just shouldn't be a Supreme court justice. Like if right. you want to be, maybe even, Maybe I don't think so, but let's even stipulate that it's legitimate to make millions of dollars a year as a union busting attorney because that's like because they have to have a defense or whatever. Let's even stipulate that that's legitimate. I don't think it is. I think it makes you a bad person. Okay, I does, but more importantly, does bad things to the people. Right. But let's even stipulate that that's fine. Okay. Maybe you just shouldn't be a Supreme Court justice. Maybe Biden, like Biden just doesn't have to pick you like it. Right. You just, and that's that's what it is. Like, what does that say about the administration that they right. would even float this out there? And I mean, now, Clyburn has never been shy about the fact that he is a corporate stooge. Right. 
that's very obvious. He, he's not very discreet about the fact that he is in the pockets of, you know, big pharma and corporate America. And, you know, this is his girl. That says mm-hmm. a lot. Lindsey Graham also has has put out uh, supporting statements uh, about her. So that says a lot. Uh, if Clyburn and Lindsey Graham are on your side, you're probably right. not on my side. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the Larry Cohen wasn't the other one. Sarah ne- wasn't the only one. Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants, uh, said there's a long list to choose from. And that's why it's great that President Biden can pass on a management side lawyer go. like Childs, who has argued who has argued disdainfully against workers rights in several in favor of. In, uh, in favor of several other candidates who have been in the trenches with workers and have a proven record of upholding worker rights. And uh, David Borer, general counsel of the American Federation of Government Employees, said she comes from an anti-union law firm where she spent time defending employers from claims of civil and labor law violations. That's not what we need. I, I appreciate them stepping yeah. up and, and speaking out as labor leaders and making it clear that this is this is not a uh, this is not a win for the you know the folks who elected Joe Biden into office. Absolutely not, absolutely not. So uh, we cannot have we can't have that. I mean, she has to be she has to be defeated, and we have to have somebody better. There are plenty of black women out there that would be fantastic Supreme Court judges, uh, like any number of random Unite Here members. <laughs> I mean, honestly, honestly. So I don't suppose we don't have anybody on the on the line, do we? Anybody trying to call in? We don't know. All right. Well, uh, that's it. Adam, did you have anything else you wanted to touch on? No, I I think that's it. I appreciate everybody who tuned in today and uh, bear with us. Always. uh, It's always interesting. Live radio. Yeah. But hopefully you had a good experience. Hopefully you learned something today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know I learned some things today. Definitely, I've got some. You know, I took some notes. I got some people to look up and some things to read. So, um, hey, that's that's what it's all about. So I appreciate it. Hope everyone has a great weekend and uh, stay safe. Yeah. Thanks for your time, everybody. Uh, Leave us a voicemail if you want us to answer a question. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can support the show by going to unionly.io slash o slash tvlr that is unionly.io slash o slash tvlr again they have better rates on processing fees than patreon does they're a union business they support unions and labor organizations so consider supporting us through unionly you can get our stickers there and our bumper stickers there And uh, the last thing that we wanted to plug is I am speaking on a panel organized by Southern chapters of the Democratic Socialists of America, raising money for the miners in Brookwood that are on strike. That is going to be on Tuesday at 6 p.m. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we will see you next week.